This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Hello and welcome to Little Gold Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair. I am delighted and proud to introduce him as Academy Award winner. And the Oscar goes to... And the Oscar goes to... The winner, it's a tie. And any little girl who's who's practicing their speech on the telly, you never know. Mom, I just want an Oscar. I am Katie Rich. I am here with not Richard Lawson, who is on vacation, uh, but with David Canfield. Hi, Katie. With Rebecca Ford. Hello. And joining us again is Chris Murphy. Hi. Thanks for having me back. Thank you for coming back. Uh, You are back to join us once again uh, for our month of Pride flashbacks. Today, we're going to be talking about Kiss of the Spider Woman, which was, I think, your pick, Chris, in the lineup that we did, which you can... um, uh, discuss. We can discuss more later about how that wound up in the group. Uh, we will hear from Richard later, along with Chris and some other theater experts, to do a Tony's preview. The Tony Awards are on Sunday. Um, but before we get into that, we're going to dip back into Emmy season because voting kicks off very shortly. And this week, David, you kind of kicked off um, a little mini series we'll be doing, just digging into the different categories and how they're shaking out. Um, and basically, inspired by the succession finale and the hoopla around it, which uh, has barely even even died down uh, more than a week later. Um, You dove deep on the drama category, which I think the operating question of your piece was, can anything beat succession? The answer is maybe not. Not only maybe not, but it's which succession people will beat other succession people. (laughs) (laughs) Um, It's come down to the fact that the show is, I think, so far out front in a lot of these races that um, it's not going to be much of a contest in in that regard. Um, A good analogy might be The Crown a couple of years ago, where that best actress race came down to Emma Corrin versus Olivia Colman. Most people thought Emma Corrin would win. And then, of course, Olivia Colman had that upset where she got to give another delightful, shocked speech. It's what she uh, does. (laughs) It's what she does. (laughs) Um, And this year, for Succession, it's on the actor side. It's, It's best actor that will almost certainly be won by one of these guys. Jeremy Strong has won the category before. He's been nominated for multiple years opposite Brian Cox, who is still going lead despite only appearing in about half the episodes. And within that five, only a handful of them in which he has a really significant role. And then Kieran Culkin, who's been nominated previously in supporting, is bumping up to lead. Many felt he was the standout of this season. And uh, he seems to be doing the most campaigning Mm -hmm. of the trio. Uh, He's been everywhere. Um, And I think rightly so. He he deserves to be celebrated for what was a pretty amazing final season. But what's interesting is that Succession is having this really exclamation mark kind of ending at the Emmys, just as a lot of, you know, pretty exciting new shows are trying to find their way in and really just at this point fighting for nominations. 
Chris, you've been talking about Succession all season with Richard on Still Watching, but we haven't really gotten to talk to you about it. And really, I just want to pose you the simple question. Is it Jeremy or is it Kieran? Or are you a Logan Roy stan and you think Brian Cox should win this category somehow? As much fun as it would be if uh, Brian Cox pulled a Judy Dench and sort of took it for (laughs) seven minutes of total screen time, I don't think it's going to be him. It's uh, It comes down to, I think personally, I'm rooting for Kieran in that I think he did some really phenomenal work, but I think it's hard to deny with the series finale, it was always Jeremy's story. You know, it was always about Kendall and Mm -hmm. it was Kendall's arc is the through line of the whole series. And so to award the leading actor of Succession and not give it to Jeremy Strong or Kendall Roy, it feels that doesn't sit right with my spirit, even though I do think uh, Kieran had a couple of showier really fantastic sort of set piece moments with the eulogy um and in the election episode so uh i think i think they're gonna go jeremy i think it's gonna be jeremy just because i think he's so undeniable as kendall and the internet loves him and like the show is about kendall right um rebecca how much do you think kieran's campaigning is going to make a difference here i feel like we've all been really noticing like what david said that like he is getting out there and he's an easier interview than Jeremy Strong, it seems. I think he knows he has an advantage there. What are you talking there. about? <laughs> <laughs> that can't be true. <laughs> um, well, I'm really team Kieran for winning this, if I if I have to admit to that. I, I think his character started out pretty simple and has, over the seasons, just really developed into something that's so interesting. So I'm definitely rooting for him. Um, I do think the campaigning is smart because he comes off as very, I mean, he seems like a very likable actor and he's giving some really strong interviews. I mean, it's funny with this show because it's not like people need to be reminded about its existence, you know, (laughs) or his existence. So how much does campaigning really help in, in that respect? But I think it's really smart that he's getting out there. It just really, it like blows my mind when we're sitting and thinking about the lead actor category being half of you know one show you just it also makes me think about who may get left off of these lists you know mm-hmm. when the nominations came out because it is it has been such a strong year for television and in drama and um i i want succession to have all the love in the world but you do think about how we're not even talking about the other <laughs> competitors in drama yeah. series because yeah. we yeah. know the inevitability of this win um, it's really interesting. Yeah, I really feel for Pedro Pascal in particular on my end, like, because he was yeah. just like the break. He was on the breakout HBO show of the year before Succession resumed its spot. Um, and I think he seems pretty certain for a nomination. But I do think if, if Succession didn't exist, we'd be talking about him as a really strong front runner to win. And I'm, you know, I'm not even sure how certain I, I could be about that, because really, yes, while Brian Cox was not in Succession that much, he's almost certainly going to be nominated. And that really leaves three spots. And so mm-hmm. if voters, say, liked Andor, House of the Dragon, more, and Bob Odenkirk comes back for Better Call Saul, that's the six slots. Yeah. Um, I think Pedro Pascal will make the cut, but it's it's at the point where you look at this race and you, you do have to ask um, or try to predict what voters liked most of that of the rest because really the rest is they're they're fighting for nominations that ordinarily they'd all get um you've also got jeff bridges around there for the old man and he's quite beloved harrison ford has a, a contender here in 1923 it's it's a really strange and interesting group that's just going to get drowned out um, by all this noise and, and we could talk about best actress for a minute too mm-hmm. because that's 
a different dynamic where I see Sarah Snook almost guaranteed to win that yeah. award, which is kind of fascinating because she was never even competing in lead before. Um, but it doesn't feel like there's as much heat in that race. And so she benefits from that versus the succession actors kind of doing this Roy infighting. Do we think that voters think at all about spreading the wealth among networks? Because if we're talking House of the Dragon, Last of Us, and Succession, we're, 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 <laughs> we're talking... And about, White Lotus. And White it's Lotus. <laughs> I mean, uh, it's almost an HBO sweep. Do we... I don't know if voters think about that at all, but it just seems sort of insane that we could see that happening if, if you know, Andor doesn't break in an acting or... I don't know. It's just kind of wild. I don't know that they do think about it. Yeah, I, <laughs> I mean, in in the case of 2020, 2020, The Crown and Schitt's Creek won every award they were up for mm-hmm. at that show. And that's, you know, two thirds of the scripted categories right there. So, and they were really both wins for Netflix, even yeah. though Schitt's Creek was not a Netflix show. It was very much a show watched on Netflix, embraced on Netflix. So in that case, it was just a total outpouring of love for the streamer. Um, and they've certainly done that for HBO in the past. I mean, even White Lotus last year, when I believe it won everything it was up for on the night, writing, directing, the supporting acting races and limited series. So, mm. you know, it's it's been the it's been the trajectory that as there's more in competition, it feels like there's just a few shows that make it to the top. It is kind of nice that after the turmoil of Max that we'd have another year of HBO being like, we do television better than anyone. <laughs> like, I don't think that's going to help this with is... the corporate chaos, but, you know, they deserve it. They make the shows that people care about. Yeah. Uh, David, you did the supporting categories rundown too, which I think uh, is, again, going to be mostly a succession bloodbath in the supporting categories. Um, I, and I guess maybe Team McFadden or Team Skarsgård, where do you land? Um, oof. I, I think I land on, I think I land on T. McFadden. He did win last year. Um, he did but... win control of Waystar Warco. <laughs> yes, he, yes, yes, he did. Spoiler. He keeps, he keeps winning. So we really shouldn't bet against him. Um, but to Chris's earlier point about Jeremy Strong, like the season really built to a big moment, several big moments for Tom. And he became a really central part of this story in a way that first allowed McFadden to play some scenes really brilliantly and go all out. And then B, for voters who watch the show, and we know a lot of voters watch this show, he's an easier vote in some ways because the work is there. The work is a part of the show that they love in a really integral way. Um, but Skarsgård's an antagonist. He's giving a big, slimy, slithery performance that I could see really finding some support, especially since he's also a recent winner for another HBO show, Big Little Lies. Oh, right. I totally forgot he won for that. They both have one under their belt. I feel like, yeah, Skarsgård, it's just such a, I mean, Matthew McFadden, he's fantastic and he already just won, but Skarsgård is having so much fun and it's such a sort of a gonzo, great performance. I don't know. I'm not that I, I don't want to say that I'm rooting against Tom, but I don't know. I think I, (laughs) I think I would give it to Lucas to spread the wealth even from one year to the next year. Yeah. Wow. I'm still obsessed with Skarsgård's Swedish accent and how he can turn it on and turn it off. Because um, you, like, I think many people would have thought he was American for, you know, being on True Blood yep. or whatever. Um, I don't think you get win awards for accents. But hey, Matthew McFadden's been doing that flawless, flat Midwestern American accent for years. <laughs> so maybe for years. that's what it comes down to. Uh, Rebecca, where, where do you land? 
I'm still rooting for Alan Ruck. Are we just forgetting our last Roy Absolutely child? Not. No, we're not. No, we're not. Um, no, I, I mean, I think Matthew McFadden wins, but I just I just loved Alan Ruck this season. He had he had those really special moments that I think I'd been waiting for that character have mm-hmm. to have. And uh, I mean, I, he hasn't been nominated before, so I just want him to make sure he gets this nomination and, and then I'll feel satisfied there. Um, but yeah, I think it felt like Matthew McFadden had like, a moment in every episode, yeah. mostly yeah. with Shiv, obviously, but he had some line of dialogue where you just were like slap, slapped in the face with it, sometimes literally, but uh, <laughs> it just, there's no denying that performance this year. I mean, this seems so deserving to win. I think you have to wonder about where, where all these actors go from here because so many of these roles are so definitive. And I think a, probably a handful of succession actors will not have a role that is definitive of them. But like Matthew McFadden, I, I feel like he could do so much from this. I, I'm, I think of all of them, I think I'm most excited to see where he goes. Mr. Darcy to Tom Wamskans to mm-hmm. who knows what. Do you feel like they just have to take a break for a while? I can't imagine coming off a show like this and starting another i hope they make enough money that they can (laughs) jeremy strong is going to broadway he's uh, he's doing a broadway show in september so he's not really taken that's a smart move Mm -hmm. i think that's smart well sarah snook had a baby that's a um good excuse to take a break yeah um let's talk about supporting actors though before we move off of succession because you did bring up um jay smith cameron david in your piece but it was not a great jerry season that's like my only complaint about the final season of succession so and she would have to be jennifer coolidge right she would have to be Jennifer Coolidge. And because, and we've talked about this before, but because HBO is in control of drama, they were able to, I think, help steer where people like Sarah Snook and Jennifer Coolidge submitted to make sure that they both won. And that's kind of where we're at. <laughs> yeah. And you know, the only suspense of this category is if another White Lotus actress could win, like a Megan Fahey or an Aubrey Plaza, who were the kind of discoveries of the second season. But it just feels like there's so much love for Jennifer Coolidge. She won, you know, a lead acting SAG award because they don't differentiate lead and supporting with um, with television. Just to me, that was the ultimate indication that she's just really far out front here. David, remind me about uh, the rules. Are we going to get a zillion nominees in the category anymore? Or is it like down to just six? No, it'll probably be eight. The difference is that you voters can only vote for eight as opposed to however right. many they want. And so with succession, you know, thinking about people like a David Rashi or, you know, all these amazing supporting actors on the show, you could see in the old system a lot of them kind of filling out these categories because that's how it's tended to work. We remember the five White Lotus actresses in that category <laughs> last year. But this year... I think that's going to be a little bit tougher. And like, I think supporting actresses, a lot of really strong performances, actually. I mean, Ray Seahorn is up for the last season of Better Call Saul. I loved Bad Sisters and I really loved Anne-Marie Duff in that show. Christina Ricci had another strong season on Yellow Jackets. Elizabeth Debicki was great on The Crown. Like you could go on and on. It's a really rich field. Um, And I don't think this is the place where Succession should receive a lot of nominations. So I would be, of course, happy to see J. Smith Cameron again. I was just going to throw out that if we're looking at a Succession suite, that it'd be cool to see Zoe Winters, who played Carrie. Yeah, Zoe Winters is another one. I think if there's anyone you want to pull out from that, you know, the supporting actresses on that show are just not as strong as the actors, but that'd be a good one. I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. 
Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. What are you guys excited to cover in the next few months? There's a new uh, translation of The Iliad that's coming out, Emily Wilson. Oh. Really excited to see whether I can read The Iliad again, whether I'm that literate. I'm, I mean, the jury is out. I can't wait to hear Adam Driver go again in an Italian accent in Michael Mann's Ferrari. <laughs> he can't stop. I mean, and, and bless him. I can't wait. Molto bene. Molto bene. <laughs> <laughs> we hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today wherever you get podcasts. You really don't want to miss this. Don't. Don't miss this. Don't miss it. See you soon. <laughs> So now we have our second installment in our Pride flashback series. This week, we are going back to 1985 and The Kiss of the Spider Woman, which I read was the first independent film to be nominated for Best Picture. I don't know that that's 100% true, but it was certainly a rare example of it in the era before Miramax and the wine scenes and when indie films really properly took over the Oscars in the 90s. It also won Best Actor for William Hurt, who had won the Best Actor Award at Cannes um, about a year before the Oscars themselves happened. Um, and when we were picking titles for this. We really wanted to go back to the 70s and the 80s. But as I said last week, the further you go back in time, the trickier it is to find titles that really fit fully into the pride designation. And Chris, you and I were talking about this and we kind of landed on this. Um, so what what made you interested in talking about this one? But then, you know, trepidatious for reasons I think we'll get into. Yeah, totally. Well, it's interesting because while you just mentioned that it, uh, you know, was the first or might have been uh, one of the first independent movies to get a Best Picture nomination. And I knew that William Hurt's performance, I think, was the first performance uh, leading actor to play a queer man and win a Best Actor Oscar. I'd never yeah, seen the movie. I think that movie. is true. Yeah. That is, I think, def- definitively true. But I'd never, I'd never seen this film. I'm very familiar with the musical that came after this film starring Cheetah Rivera. Mm-hmm. Which I want to talk about. We, we need to get there because I'm very curious oh, yeah. about that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Cheetah so, Rivera. <laughs> Cheetah Rivera. Um, and loved the music from it. Had never seen a full stage production of that show either. But Kiss of the Spider Moon has always been sort of a title that's sort of been uh, bopping around my brain or sort of in the outskirts of, you know, film and television and theater. But this I felt was like a really good opportunity to dive in. And it was a lot more of a polarizing watch than I expected. It was not what I expected, even having sort of, you know, the foundation, knowing the musical and and the general storyline. But that was, uh, yeah, I uh, I had a little bit of difficulty with it, honestly. Mm-hmm. Do you want to give the uh, the basic setup of, of what the story is? Yeah, um, <laughs> that's a, probably a great idea. So it centers around... Um, <laughs> This prisoner, Molina, played by William Hurt, he is a gay man in Brazil, um, and he was arrested for um, having um, corrupting an underage youth, um, so uh, for being gay, basically. And he's put in a prison cell with Valentin, a sort of Che Guevara revolutionary anarchist leftist fighter, um, and he they have sort of a contentious relationship, sharing this prison cell, they don't really get along. And uh, Molina, Luis Molina, William Hurt, um, is prone to retelling his favorite Nazi propaganda movie. Mm-hmm. Everyone um, has one, and he, he picked his. 
The twists and turns of this synopsis. Yeah, really. No expected Nazi propaganda. (laughs) To be a central tenet to the film. Um, And so he sort of, we spend a lot of time in the prison, and then we also sort of have these sort of gorgeous sort of 40s-esque vignettes of seeing this beautiful woman uh, character, uh, Aurora, who he who he sort of fantasizes and sort of lives through um, in telling the story to Valentin. And then him and Valentin, he sort of falls in love with Valentin and he ends up, well, you know, betraying Valentin in uh, in a way to sort of get out of, to get out of prison. Um, But it really does sort of just throw you in. It opens with Melina just sort of in the middle of telling a scene from mm-hmm. the Nazi propaganda film, which I was like, whoa, like there's no sort of hand holding. You're just sort of dropped in to the cell with these two men and into this uh, Molina's fantasy life and his escapist fantasy life. And so I was sort of thrown by that. And it really doesn't, um, yeah, it doesn't hold your hand throughout the film. But, but yeah, I was really sort of struck by how not difficult, but I was watching with a big group of people and they had a little bit of trouble <laughs> getting into it. I will say. I'm very impressed that you got a group of people to sit down and watch this movie, honestly. Like, that's not the easiest sell in like a like a beach vacation. <laughs> yeah, it definitely was not. Yeah, it definitely was not sort of a fun summer rom-com. It was, on, I'm on Fire Island right now. It was not like watching Fire Island, that I'll say. <laughs> that's tonight's viewing. Now yeah, that you've yeah. gone through this one. <laughs> yeah. Um, all that, all that being said, I was, and I, we, we should talk about the William Hurt of it all, but I think I was expecting a, a, a showy or sort of like more, you know, flamboyant performance, more stereotypical. So I was actually kind of like delightfully surprised by sort of how grounded and mm-hmm. um, accessible and real he made Melita feel, um, which, and following him, he was really, you know, it's his movie, The Ark Surrounds. Melina's sort of tragic story, of course, because it's a a gay movie in the 80s, it's tragic, <laughs> it ends tragically. And kind of all the stories are tragic in this movie, though. He's not really an outlier. He's absolutely not an outlier, but it made sense after watching, you know, after seeing the film, I was like, oh, I totally get how he won the Oscar. Um, and he was in the middle of like a three-year stretch where he was nominated every yeah. year. Yeah. Because um, he had Children of a Lesser God and this and broadcast news. Yeah. It's interesting that he won for this, but I was sadly or maybe problematically impressed with his performance. Well, I I think that's really the interesting thing to talk about because I was doing the same thing, kind of bracing for impact, putting this movie on. You know, you, you hear being like, oh, yes, a straight man won an Oscar for playing a gay man in the 80s. He was so brave. And you like <laughs> yeah. really start put your teeth on edge. But I found the same thing you did, Chris, where like hey, Molina is a really theatrical character. Like he is inspired by like old 40s movie sirens. He's like wearing a like, I don't know where he gets his robe in prison, but he has like incredible clothing. Um, but there's so much to the character. And I think the relationship that he and Raul Julia build like with these two people in prison like it's really lovely I struggled with the first hour of this movie and then in the second hour I found myself like really surprisingly moved um, and I think the performance but for both of them honestly I think Raul Julia didn't get nearly enough credit um, no, I can't believe he didn't get nominated yeah, man. Um, and it's a fun little musical theater thing to me that this then became a musical and Raul Julia played um, he was Guido Contini in Nine which is another like in the original Broadway cast um, which then became a movie with Daniel Day-Lewis <laughs> Um, <laughs> it all goes back music. to the Oscars. Yeah, it all goes back. It all goes back. Um, yeah, I mean, I think my favorite scenes 
in the film. Sorry to the Nazi propaganda aspect of it all. It was, <laughs> it was not my favorite part. But I do think it was the, the sort of the tender moments um, between Raul Julia Valentin and uh, Molina, William Hurt. I mean, when he's, Molina's cleaning him up after, you know, he's been being poisoned by the prison warden Valentin. Um, so he has like a moment of incontinence and it's handled very sort of tenderly and because I think it's a little, you know, it, we don't see anything, but there's a really sort of tender moment of Molina cleaning up Valentine in this moment of weakness on their prison cell floor that was like very, very touching um, and kind of beautiful. Yeah. Janet Maslin reviewed it in the New York Times and she, she like singled that moment out being like, I cannot believe they can create a moment of this much tenderness from somebody having like debilitating stomach issues. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so you're not, you're not alone, Chris. <laughs> so gross. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I've, I've seen this movie twice now, which is probably great for my mental health. <laughs> <laughs> Um, including one when I was probably a little too young, but, uh, anyway, yeah, I, I, I don't love this movie. I, I have a lot of issues with it, but I, the first hour is so interesting to me because it's, you know, I, I for some reason, the first thing I thought of when I was rewatching it was this sort of ongoing thing we hear all the time nowadays, which is like, they don't make Oscar movies like they used to, mm-hmm. like every, they used to be for yeah. everybody. And this is like, it's so inaccessible. Yeah. <laughs> it's and not it's, for anybody. <laughs> that that long opening shot, which is beautiful if you can take a step back and admire it as he's, you know, you're starting to hear him tell the story, Melina, and and you you really follow this camera around the cell and you realize where they are. It's really well done, but it's like, what's happening? Like, yeah. Having seen the movie, I'm like, what? Why are we arguing about whether or not this is a Nazi propaganda movie, and what does this have to do with this relationship? Like, yeah. what? And it it really does not hold your hand at all, and it it takes its takes its sweet time to um sort of unveil the connection and and deepen the relationship between these two characters. Um, the one thing that surprised me was I I found myself struggling with Hertz performance a little bit more this time around. Um, he definitely is not over the top and I can see why this would be a slam dunk win and it's especially in the, in the time, but there's something to me about it almost felt underplayed at times. Hmm. Yeah. And it, it felt like respectful to a fault, which maybe was what you had to do in 1985 <laughs> uh, to do this right. But there was something about it that the whole movie, there's, there's something about it that just feels slightly off in the, the execution of it. Uh, we can also talk a little bit about the novel in which it's based, which is, a lot gayer and generally had to be watered down pretty considerably and inevitably uh, yeah. for the movie. I was wondering if, if anyone here had read the novel, David, I was kind of betting that you would be the person. <laughs> <laughs> you read uh, I, I, I have, I'm not, I don't remember it that well. I mean, I remember it, but I don't remember exactly what was, you know, changed right. from to the movie. But I do know, like say the, titular kiss it's a different kind of moment in the book it's it's a lot more sensual and present mm. yeah I, I was so curious about because i was reading a little bit about the book and it sounds like it wasn't the easiest thing to adapt like it's sort of uh doesn't have a traditional narrative as a book and and apparently there were a lot more sort of these stories that he's telling about movies there were several of them and the film lowered it down to you know just the main one um, the Nazi propaganda movie. And so, yeah, I was curious how much of a different experience the the book would be. 
Um, because I, I, yeah, I feel like I can view this movie in two ways. Like as a performance piece, it's incredible. I, I especially thought Raul Julia was yeah. um, mm. really incredible with a tough character and, you know, from what we can see, didn't get that much attention um, compared to what uh, Hurt got. But, but I guess, you know, being a flashy Oscar performance uh, is not nothing new and still happens today or, yeah. right, when it comes to a two-hander. But it's, it's hard with these films, you know, especially when Katie makes us go back further and further to find films to watch. To, to, <laughs> it's to called to history, them. Rebecca. <laughs> yeah. And, and yeah, and, and, you know, feel discomfort with, with some of the choices and things. But performance-wise, I thought it was pretty incredible to watch, um, mm. at least. I so agree. And Raul Julia really um, does fantastic work. And it was interesting sort of going back and like, as we're watching these movies and uh, going back, I kept thinking about like, you know, how far we've come in sort of society and how movies have changed and whatnot. And with this movie, I kept thinking about Brendan Fraser in The Whale. Mm -hmm. um, and now he just won for, you know, straight man playing, you know, a queer, a miserable queer character in a way. Mm -hmm. um, and how maybe the narratives haven't change as much and maybe yeah. in a in a way that it might be kind of upsetting although i was watching because of the spider woman i really if it were made today i was thinking okay how could this be updated or you know if it were remade it really feels like melina melina's character you know there's a lot of trans it's trans coded yes, yeah. or very much would yeah. be or should be explicitly you know or trans or genderqueer or whatnot in a way that was not exactly said in the film in the 1980s yeah. It it's it's so interesting how a lot of the coverage at the time I did read up a little bit was refers to him as effeminate. Mm -hmm. And that is exactly what the coding is mm -hmm. here. It it does feel very trans to me in a way that's just not spoken or stated or even maybe understood by yeah. the filmmakers to be honest. Yeah. It's totally. <laughs> I don't think I think that there's a lot of again it's just it's not it's just the, it is of the time and so you do have these sort of mixed messages about how this character identifies exactly who he is. I don't think Hurt was particularly tapped into queer theory in the mid-1980s. Yeah. Um, not his fault. Yeah. But again, that's just the sort of stuff that comes up when you have an actor like that, in a part like that, in a, in a production like that. It was made for not a lot of money. I read that like Richard Gere was originally cast to play Valentine, mm -hmm. which is... Mm -hmm insane to me <laughs> and Burt Lancaster had developed it forever to play Molina and he was like in his 70s at this point I really there's an interview that IndieWire did with uh, the producer David Wiseman in 2010 where he talks about working with Burt Lancaster and how much he hated him uh, it's a really good read if you want to hear about what could have been he got a special thank you at the end, Burt Lancaster. I was wondering yeah. why he didn't get it. Yeah, on the in the credits it says special thanks to Burt Lancaster. So. He worked a long time on it. That explains yeah. that. About all those details to say this was a production that I think had a pretty challenged sense of self. And I, I do think you had people fighting for a better version of it than what the initial, you know, Hollywoodified story was going to be, again, with Richard Gere in that part. Yeah. Um, but still, there's only so far you can go. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I was wondering where you guys landed on this. A scene that happens late in the movie and spoilers, sorry. Um, but when Melina leaves and he goes back to the bar with his friends and he's like watching a drag performer who's popping balloons in her body. I don't didn't fully understand that part of <laughs> yeah, it. But was it, was, kind of it was such a vivid world that you stepped into all of a sudden. And I was mm -hmm. aware of what you were saying earlier, Chris, about like the tragic gay character in the 80s and how common that stereotype was. And there is a tragic ending to the story. But 
like Molina's happy in that place for a little while and is among people who are happy and kind of making the most of their lives. And I thought that was really striking, even in an independent movie at this time, to kind of to, to present that world so frankly and um, with with joy to be found in it. Yeah, I I love that scene. And especially, you know, with a large group of people like that did sort of like, you know, uh, capture more attention. And because it is kind of a slower, you know, it's two men in a prison cell for long stretches of time. It's a little it's a little slower. And I do think, David, I totally agree that Hurt is definitely goes under. He does not go over with his performance. He goes under. So that scene was a nice bit like totally a nice moment where it sort of blossoms and flourishes. It's a little bit over. It's a little bit exaggerated. It's, you know, a woman wearing a red dress popping balloons all over her body. You know? <laughs> There's that guy with those sunglasses on who looks like he's out of like Blade Runner. It's great. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think a little bit of that. I mean, for a two hour movie, it, it would have been nice to have a few more of those moments. But again, as we said, it's sort of, you know, sad. It's a it's a tragic story. So I also had a moment once he enters the real world where you're like, oh, this is the 80s, because in the prison stuff, you don't see that much costuming. But then you <laughs> step into these crowd scenes and you're like, oh, yes, we are definitely in the 80s with the costuming. It's, it's pretty great. Yeah, it's pretty timeless when you're in that space with them. It definitely achieves the claustrophobic feel yeah. in that in that first part, because in so many ways you feel that transition because <laughs> it's just it, it does feel tough to sit through when you're just kind of in these quarters. Yeah, I, I agree. And I, but okay, I guess, how did we feel about the, like the, the Nazi propaganda aspect of it? Cause I know it was really just about the old movies and they do interrogate, like it's Raul Julia's character is like, it's really messed up that you love these films. It's yeah. Really, it's not in favor of Nazi. Propaganda. It's not. It's, yeah. It's very much not pro Nazi propaganda at all. <laughs> it's really about the style of, you know, the type of filmmaking in this one character, that Spider Woman, um, played by Sonia Braga, who is so gorgeous and really, oh my god, you know, so gorgeous. So, which is the whole point. This aesthetically, just really um, amazing. But I was like, wow, I don't know if you could like make this today, given that like there were other. I mean, there are other propaganda films that they could have you know used, and um, not that any propaganda films are good, but I appreciated the like this the escapist fantasy jumps into this other time because it got us out of the cell and it expanded the world. But I'd also didn't sit completely right with me if that. I, it makes me wonder if there is a South American, because I mean, this is an Argentinian novel. Like I think a lot of like former Nazis wind up in Argentina. Like I wonder mm-hmm. if there's a context to it that we cannot understand. Cause I just, I don't really understand someone watching <laughs> Nazi propaganda movies, like growing up on them as a child that would not have happened here. Um, yeah. So I think, I think there's just gotta be a cultural difference there. It has to be. But then this movie, they moved it from Argentina to Brazil. Yeah. So that also was confusing, too, because I was like, mm. OK, because it would have made a little bit more sense in Argentina. But uh, yeah, that it was hard for me to be like, how? Yeah. How would he have such an appreciation for this t- this film or these types of movies? Especially in 1985, like for for an American audience, I, I also wonder about that because it's closer to home a little bit. The book, from what I remember, I mean, it is in the book and it's. It's staged as a pretty clear dialogue about, you know, what we even talk about now, like, you know, art and monstrosity and it's, it's emphasized that the film is well done. And, and mm-hmm. how do you square that with the fact that it's a Nazi film? So I don't I'm not aware of the context either, but I completely agree with you. I think it is especially jarring to see it in a movie, like see the swastika, yeah. and see this sort of romantic vision uh, he's having play out especially in the early going where again you're just trying to get your bearings and 
it's never fully explained why you're being placed into this really hideous world. Yeah. And it, and it, it's a, rom- a romanticized hideous world. Like it's like, it's, right. it's, so yeah, it's supposed to be not aspirational, but this is where he, this is where he chooses to escape to. It's interesting that for Melina, you know, of he's stuck in prison of all the things that he could fantasize and about and use as an escapist vehicle. It's, it's this world, which, but then it's like he sort of, Melina sort of becomes the spider woman for Valentin, right? It's like yeah. they're sort of their, mm-hmm. their stories sort of map onto each other in kind of an interesting way in terms of dying for the one that you love and, yeah. you know. And learning to not be apolitical, right? Like, you know, you yes. see in the Nazi story, like this woman who'll kind of like play both sides of it and Melina's learning the same thing, which is another, like to, to depict someone who was openly queer at that time in kind of a repressive government as being inherently apolitical. Like, I don't think that tracks with the way we understand politics yeah. and identity now. Um, but again, that's another thing that has just changed in the last 40 years. Yeah, especially now in this like incredibly politicized moment, it did feel like, wait, how... How could Melina not care? Yeah, exactly. Um, I wanted to talk about the uh, the context of how this was released because it was like like we said, like indie film was really nascent at that time. It was picked up at Cannes by this company called Island Alive, which no longer existed by the end of the eighties. Um, it made seventeen million dollars at the at the domestic yeah. box office in nineteen eighty five money, which is how much money The Fablemans and The Whale made in twenty twenty two dollars last year. The whale's like back. that's I know. <laughs> I couldn't believe it when I saw the lineup. Yeah. Um, but that's how big a hit it was. Like it really just played and played, and I think that explains how it gets to the position it was at the Oscars up against the likes of like Out of Africa and Princey's Honor and Witness. Like it was it was really this underdog success story. Um, I don't I mean, I think we all found things to appreciate in it. I am interested in what was getting audiences like flocking to this in art houses in 1985 um, and getting through that first hour. That's maybe like, harder to get into. I'd love to hear from anyone who saw this in theaters in 1985 to hear about what was being talked about, because that's harder to to research. Yeah. It might also just be the reality of the function the Oscars played then versus now, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, mm. as we've talked about, the the audience, theatrical audience for those movies has has really shrunk. Yeah. And so, you know, the Fablemans would have made a lot more money in 1985, in 1985 dollars. Yeah, it was uh, it was re-released in February and again in March. I'm looking at the um, at the box office on Box Office Mojo and made a, a chunk of money uh, in its re-release. That's how that works. It's also pretty incredible that this book was adapted three different ways as a stage play uh, the movie and then also musical i'm not that familiar with the musical but chris it sounds like you're pretty familiar with it <laughs> yeah yeah no it's well it's one of those it's like sort of like an imperfect musical that it doesn't get done that many times or it hasn't been revived that many times cheetah won the tony for playing in the musical um the spider woman's name is aurora in the movie it's not aurora so i, I think i said aurora earlier but she plays the character of aurora the the um woman in the Nazi propaganda film. Um, and then it was revived again and Vanessa Williams played. Um, oh. Yeah, that was a, one of her like major Broadway roles. And really it hasn't been done, at least in New York professionally, to my knowledge, at least on Broadway, since uh, the Vanessa Williams production in in the 90s. And there are all these, all these rumors. I think there was, uh, the Kennedy Center was going to do it, maybe with Audra McDonald as mm. the lead role. Um, but it, it, it tends to fall apart. I don't know. It, there doesn't seem to be like the appetite, even though it's, it's a musical written by Candor and Ebb, and that's Chicago. That's, they did Cabaret yeah. in Chicago. They're classic Broadway, you know, a Broadway duo. But sort of similarly to the movie, it just, 
doesn't really completely work or it doesn't really have uh, the following that some of the, their other properties do, which I always think is interesting. I don't fully understand how it works as a musical. Like, I wonder if you like, if, obviously, the Spider Woman role is bigger in the musical if you're getting all these musical numbers for Cheetah Rivera but like is it more of a, like an actual love story in real life like I'm just I'm I would love to see a production to see how this works yeah I uh, same I mean I know from clips and YouTube videos I've seen a million <laughs> that it's you know <laughs> dancier and it's way it's a uh, it's flash like the fantasy sequences are big dance numbers and and there's a lot of uh bells and whistles for that but seeing the sort of the central love story um play out how that how do you transition from one world to the next and and what that looks like that i'm curious about because I've, I've, ne- I've never seen a full production so i don't really i don't really know how you pull that off someone stage it and we'll go we'll do a <laughs> yeah. live podcast from your production spider woman yes um should we talk about the 1985 oscars rebecca i think you said you also went down a rabbit hole of youtube clips like i did yeah yeah i mean well i watched um william hurt's very short acceptance. I forgot acceptance speeches were super short back in the day, but <laughs> some um, of them were. I mean, some yeah. of his is very short. And but he was up against Harrison Ford, James Garner, Jack Nicholson. Who you should watch it for the the like cutaway to Jack Nicholson alone because he has dark glasses on and looks asleep when they. <laughs> <laughs> no, <laughs> and he has a broken uh, arm, right? I, well, he's sitting, so I okay. couldn't see his arm, but uh, and was too distracted by the fact that his face doesn't move. And then uh, John Voight. So it's like, and wait, who's sitting next to John Voight when you see him? Did you notice? I didn't. Notice. Angelina Jolie. Oh, oh wow. she's his date. Yeah. She's like thirteen or something. That's so crazy. Wow. So I mean, it was such a crazy lineup when you look at those actors and uh, and I, when he wins. I think I don't know. I'm such a sucker for those moments of like genuine joy that. I always believe them. I don't care if you're an actor. I believe that you're not faking your joy at that moment. <laughs> yeah, I um, I went down the rabbit hole in William Hurt, who there's you can find on the LA Times. He did this interview um, for Kiss the Spider Woman. It was kind, it was like in the fall. It was kind of in its successful box office run, and it's he just goes on and on and on about acting technique and mm-hmm. like how he doesn't want to do interviews, but he has to do these interviews, and it's <laughs> it's so intolerable. It would ruin an Oscar <laughs> campaign now. Um, Jeremy then, Strong. <laughs> Yeah, it's, it's real Jeremy Strong, except like without the like self-flagellating. Like I know this is bad. It's just like, hello, I am here to save acting. Um, but in, in the book Inside Oscar, which I love and recommend all the time by Mason Wiley and Damian Bona, they do like a whole chapter on this, and they had a quote from Rex Reed um, about William Hurt's speech, and I'm just going to read it. One of the night's major sighs of relief came when Hurt, who has committed verbal suicide on more than one occasion with long-winded, incoherent speeches about the metaphysics of acting, said a simple thank you and mercy left the stage <laughs> the metaphysics of acting that <laughs> sounds like very rex reed uh very rex reed but he was not wrong wow, wow. <laughs> can i do what can i do one more detour <laughs> please. please okay That's... so so island alive the distributor um also released the trip to bountiful which is um what geraldine page sure won best actress for um so first of all you can watch her clip she took her shoes off before they announced best actress because she didn't think they would win so when she wins she's sitting right behind angelina jolie so you see everyone standing up and she's like down rooting underneath her seat to get her <laughs> shoes before she can go up and, get, and make her speech um huh. but before the oscars uh she gave a quote about coming to the 
Awards. She made fun of Meryl Streep's accents, which is incredible. She was up that year for Out of Africa. And then she said, I love the Oscars. All sorts of tacky people win. And watching everyone run up and down those aisles is just adorable. (laughs) (laughs) Tacky and adorable. Why don't people give interviews like this anymore? It's so good. This should be in the opening for this podcast. Can you (laughs) find the audio? Her speech is really great also. Oh, wow. I mean, this is the year that uh, Spielberg gets done for The Color Purple. Uh, Cher wears the Bob Mackie headdress. It's a it's a strong That's a big year. I know, big year. So maybe maybe next time we'll just do a full eighty five flashback because there's a lot to get into. Well, okay. Do you guys recommend that people see Kiss of the Spider Woman? It is a mixed bag. Oh, wait, Chris, tell us about your group's reaction to it. Like, was everyone mad that they had watched it? <laughs> no, I think there was more like, I think, well, some people didn't make it to the end. I'll say that. So some people just walked away gave and, and gave up halfway through. Because that first hour is really kind of, it is kind of tough. But I think people who stayed to the end, I would say so, yeah. People who stayed to the end were ultimately glad that they had seen it and thought it was like an interesting queer movie. Um and with some really like great performances, uh, if not a little bit slow, a little bit too long, a little stodgy, a little old fashioned, and then the Nazi propaganda of it all was just sort of a <laughs> bizarro sprinkling on top. Um, so I, so yeah, I mean, I'm. It's one of those movies that I'm happy to now have seen, but won't be seeing again anytime soon. <laughs> I don't think I'd be rewatching it, but I would. I recommend it. If you have two hours and you want to see some compelling performances, but you're not in a rush and you and you <laughs> you're not in a rush and you're not looking to be like blown away, yeah, I I would say yes. One can also draw a straight line from William Hurt to Brandon Fraser as you know straight men who have won Oscars for playing gay men. Mm-hmm. I will get on my soapbox and say that it still never happened in the reverse in this best actor category. Yep. Yeah, and that is, uh, yeah, that's not great. I do think if you tend to be an Oscar completist, and if you're listening to this podcast, the odds are decent that you are. Like, there there are surprises to be had in here. Like, I think there's sometimes you're like, I've crossed that off my list. Now I never have to think about it again. But I think I will think, I think more of this movie will linger with me than I would have expected before I watched it. So I would, you know, if you've got it on your list somewhere, you can maybe move it up a few notches. I'm Rachel Martin. You probably know how interview podcasts with famous people usually go. There's a host, a guest, and a light Q&A. But on Wildcard, we have ripped up the typical script. It's a new podcast from NPR where I invite actors, artists, and comedians to play a game using a special deck of cards to talk about some of life's biggest questions. Listen to Wildcard wherever you get your podcasts. Only from NPR. So, Chris, now we're going to jump to the conversation you had uh, with Richard and some friends about the Tony Awards, which are this Sunday. You guys recorded the conversation, I think, before the WGA strike began um, and before it became clear how it would affect the show. Um, But I think your conversation still stands. Yes, it was uh, a conversation between me and Richard and Jackson McHenry and Esther Zuckerman. We had a, a meeting of the minds to discuss who who might take home the theater world's biggest awards, but it was right before the WGA's strike, so we didn't know if the Tonys were even going to happen, but we sort of just pressed ahead, assumed that something was going to work out, and luckily uh, the Tonys cut a deal with the WGA, and they are happening. They will be happening live on Sunday, June 11th, um, and we'll see if our predictions are correct. Yeah, let's go hear them. I'm sure they're flawless. When 
Well, Chris, you and I have the pleasure of being joined by two theater experts yes. who we often see at shows and have seen at shows this season. Sit right next to them at shows very often. <laughs> uh, we are with uh, freelance culture critic Esther Zuckerman. Hello, Esther. Hello. Thank you. And vulture critic Jackson McHenry. Hello, hello. So, Jackson, you have been doing a lot of theater criticism this season, way more than any of the three of us. Yes. Um, so I'm curious to start with you. Like, what is your sort of overview of this season in Broadway? Like, um, it doesn't have to be a positive or negative take. I'm just sort of curious if you saw any trends or anything like that. Yeah, I mean, it, it's been interesting because it feels like it's a season that has covered a lot of at least attempted back to normalcy in the middle of the pandemic. Like sort of was, I was looking back, especially last summer, because um, one of the big sort of musical revivals nominated is Into the Woods. And that was a big deal because it was making a lot of money and selling tickets with Sarah Bareilles when it was open over the summer at a time when shows were especially suffering. Mm. Um, and in the fall, especially on the play side, like things like Ain't No Mo and um, K-pop, also a musical closed early. It was a very tough fall. Yeah. Um, and there was a lot of people sort of trying out productions and especially trying to increase diversity on Broadway in ways that were not sort of clicking as much. Um, with audiences, at least sort of ticket sales-wise. Um, I'm glad a lot of them were recognized for Tony's because they were very good shows. Um, and it feels like this spring is a little bit more of a swing in the opposite direction towards a lot of bigger blockbuster shows, big revivals, Sweeney Todd, that kind of thing. And so it's been an interesting movie stars coming in with Jodie Comer and Jessica Chastain. Yes. Um, and so it's been an interesting sort of like looking over the nominations, you see like three very different sort of seasons within this larger season of like quieter summer and more experimental fall um, and then a sort of blockbuster spring all mixed together. Yeah, I mean, I think that I don't really have a ton of memory from the fall because it was such a worrisome time that maybe I sort of blocked it out. And then the spring felt like appropriately to the season, a sort of rebirth, a bounty. Esther, what was your sort of hot ticket like this season? What was the thing you when you saw that it was coming, you knew you had to see? I mean, it was sort of the it is sort of also another season of Sondheim. And so I was, you know, in, in wake of his death, there have been, um, you know, there are these multiple productions um, that are coming and more to come. Um, so I definitely was extremely eager to see the Sweeney Todd revival, as we said, um, just because mainly because I wanted to see it with a um, with the full orchestra. That was so huge. Um, and then, you know different returns on that. Um, I, I did like the production, but mm. we can get into oh, we will d- We will get into it. <laughs> I, I had some notes. Yeah. But, you yeah, 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 yeah. But, um, but, you know, and then on, you know, the smaller side, I was so eager to see Kimberly Akimbo. I missed it um, on its off-Broadway run. And so then when I finally got a chance to see it, I um, was sort of blown away. And on the play side, the Jodie Comer production um, of Prima Fossey, is that sure. how we're saying we'll it? we'll go with that. Is that it? I don't know. <laughs> I was, that, that I was sort of listening, yeah. you know, in the announcement at the beginning, and I think they said Prima Fossey. Prima so okay. I, I don't know. That's Prima what I'm going to go with. Um, but that had been such a, you know, hot ticket coming from London that I was super eager to see that. Yeah. And it's proven a hot ticket with celebrities. And apparently yes. it's, it's the kind of the, the hottest club in New York is <laughs> that orchestra section. Um Chris, you were in a play this year uh, yes, off Broadway. Off Broadway, so no um, Tony for me, but that's no, okay. You know, me and Leah Michelle will be fine. But you're surrounded <laughs> by your Obie Awards, which is great. Um, but you're you're pretty plugged into the theater community as a creative person, as a performer. Um, was there a sort of particular way that people in that side of things were talking about this year in theater? Were, are people mostly happy with how theater has rebounded, or what? I 
I want to say yes, not to sound like a cockeyed optimist, but I think people are, had, to, had, to, had to give it to them. Um, but I do think um, even with like the sort of messy fall or sort of, you know, with some really great shows that, you know, that uh, were beloved by performers and critics, I think Aidomo is a really good, great example of uh, a show that was unable to like find its audience and to run for a long time, but was really loved by the community and um, and by actors and creatives alike. I think that, not to say Broadway's back, but it's it feels like it's back in a real way. And I'm, to sort of pivot to the Tonys, I was really impressed by how the Tony uh, voters had a really good memory. They really remembered some of these shows that sort of happened, you know, our Eight No Mo's, Into the Woods, which we sat next to each other, Esther. Yes, we did. Uh, <laughs> um, at opening night. At opening night. Um, and these productions, it wasn't just sort of recency bias of, oh, this thing just happened, so we we're going to, you know, give the Tonys or, you know, give the nominations to, you know, Sweeney and New York, New York, and these shows that sort of just came out. It was a really, it was a long season with ups and downs, but I thought the Tonys did a really good job of sort of like representing the entire season of Broadway. Yeah. I, would say. I was nervous because some of the kind of precursor nominations were announced, drama desks and outer critics and all that stuff. And I didn't see a lot of love for Top Dog Underdog, which I thought was sort of the, high, of what I saw in the fall was like the, the best thing. I think I that was my, my, my favorite um, play of the season, so potentially. I was so happy to yeah. see both, them, of them. both of them. Yeah, because it's tough. They're both in lead. Um, actually, that may be a good way to get into kind of category prediction. Maybe we could start with, <laughs> with a you know, lead actor in a play. Um, we mentioned Top Dog Underdog. That's, of course, Corey Hawkins and Yaya Abdul-Mateen. Um, and uh, joining them is Sean Hayes for Goodnight Oscar, which I did not see. Uh, Stephen McKinley Henderson, the great, uh, in between Riverside and Crazy, <laughs> and Wendell Pierce for Arthur Mil- Miller's Death of a Salesman, which was a London transfer. Yeah, I gotta say, just off the top, like four black actors in the leading actor yeah. uh, in a play, absolutely incredible. It's so, it's like, and they're all so fantastic, all of those performances. And I also didn't see Sean Hayes. I'm sure he's wonderful. I also have not seen <laughs> Am I the only one who has? <laughs> yeah. I mean, he's very good. He plays Oscar Levant, who was a sort of frequent guest on on talk shows and um, a pianist. And he, he performs playing piano on stage. And he's he does a, a concert sort of pianist. He was a concert pianist. He was trained as a concert pianist. You're like, oh, yeah. Sean Hayes can really play the piano. Um, what can and he, he has a sort of whole playing Rhapsody of Blue mental breakdown thing. I mean, it, 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 he's also the only one in a, a play that is currently running. It mm. will be running as of the Tonys, which is sort of something in favor of recent bias yeah. that, that voters may fall for. But. And isn't that also another big sort of celebrity hot ticket? I feel like I've seen so many Instagrams so. of people. <laughs> I mean, I mean, I think he's beloved, yes. too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Has he won a Tony yet? No. He I didn't win for so. Promises, Promises. I, no. no and, and I believe, yeah, and he's sort of showing off a dramatic side and people mm-hmm. know him from Will and Grace and that's sort of the big angle for that. But he famously got his start on stage in Puppetry of the Pianist, right? <laughs> no, no one remember puppetry at the penis. No, no. Okay, never mind. Um, for my money, uh, when I saw Top Dog Underdog, um, I, Abdul Mateen is amazing in it. But like Corey Hawkins, I was like, totally. wait a second. I'd seen him in um, Six Degrees Separation a few seasons ago, um, and he was good in that. But that's such a kind of almost ingenue role, mm-hmm. uh, a sinister ingenue. But um, but this is like leading man shit, and I was just like. Oh, this is one of our great younger actors. Um, do you guys agree? I completely. I I was gonna say that of those two performances, both are incredible. But Corey Hawkins really blew me away. And he, I mean, this is sort of going off 
outside of the box, but he's so versatile. Mm. I mean, like, he's one of those, you know, you see him in the Heights in the movie, and he, you know, has this gorgeous voice, and he's, then you see him do this, and he's incredible, and then obviously I have all his other film work. It's, it, but it was also, yeah, again, it was another really performance of, like, oh, shit, yeah. he can do this. Fully like, transformative in, like, yeah. a way that you don't necessarily see or I didn't expect from because I'd never seen him. You know, even in um uh the Julius or no, what was that? The Tragedy of Macbeth. He was great oh, yes. in Tragedy of Macbeth too. Yeah. And yet this sort of showcase of Top Dog Underdog, which you know Susan Laurie Parks, it's really a masterpiece of a play. Um, it let him sort of show off a completely different side, the sort of range that I had not yet seen. And he has an incredible voice, and he gets to play the guitar at yes. one point, and that is also fantastic. I I almost put Corey Hawkins in like one of the best performances of the year in terms of our big Vanity yeah. Fair list, but I don't don't know why that didn't make it actually. Um, I. I'm definitely rooting for Corey second most to Stephen McKinley Henderson was unbelievable in Between Riverside and Crazy. And he's such a veteran stage actor. And it's really great to see him get his due from his little parasol in Dune to like his, <laughs> yeah, to his, his Dune parasol. His Dune parasol. Mm-hmm. I, I feel if I were a Tony voter, um, Corey Hawkins obviously is fantastic, but he's going to have a long career. He already has a great career. He's got a lot of time. I think Stephen McKinley Henderson, I, I think that's who I would give it to. And if he doesn't win, you can always throw out the Ladybird meme. Yeah, they didn't exactly. get it. <laughs> Has he not won a Tony? I will look that up right now, but I do not believe so. Believe so, and this That's is such crazy. a show, sort of like fitted yeah. around his his skills, and he's so good as this sort of older man who is uh, in a deep and involved lawsuit with the MIPD, which he was a formerly member of, and he's trying to hold on to this rent control department on Riverside Drive, and he has these kids he's a mad at, and it's just like a great sort of almost like King Lear in a way, mm. but its own thing. Yeah. Um, that yeah, I thought he was incredible. He's in. only been nominated for a Tony, so he's not yet won wow. a Tony. I will say to round out the category, I mean. I thought Wendell Pierce was very good in Death of a Salesman, but Sharon D. Clark sort of was overlooked for that performance. Um, yeah. And I think that was sort of the standout performance of that production, which I did have some issues with. It's just very British in a way that, yeah. <laughs> that, that I felt mean, weird. I appreciate like it was sort of a, took some big swings for revival and the memory play of it all. But it did feel sort of cold and British in a way that yeah. when you think of Death of a Salesman, this great American play. I sometimes had issues with. Yeah, I mean, and there was a use of music that was, you know, interesting but didn't fully work for me because then it took away from, you know, the play of it all. (laughs) (laughs) Where I wanted to hear the language. Um, But yeah, that was sort of my main point. So who do we think is going to win in this category? I would say probably because I'm cynical, Sean Hayes. Yeah, Yeah, me too. Um, Jackson, what, what do you think? I'm I'm just going to say I hope it's Stephen McKinley Henderson. I yeah. feel like he might have the sort of moment. I also did love Corey Hawkins in Top Dog Underdog. My friend described that as Yale School of Drama versus Juilliard. <laughs> yes, that's literally yeah. what it was. Because he went to Juilliard and Yaya yeah, went, went to, to Yale. Yale right? And it's like very, like, of those drama schools, their techniques are very, like, akin to that yeah. those styles of teaching. Um, but, but, yeah, I feel like McKinley Henderson yeah. maybe, but... Could be Hayes. Not to be. A, it would be a little bit of a bummer if, it, if it's is Sean Hayes, given the category and given how you know the the breadth of diversity. If so, I'm going to say will and should win Stephen McKinley Henderson. But Sean Hayes is wonderful too. But 
crossing my fingers for Stephen. I feel like McKinley Henderson, who is, you know, one of the most famous interpreters of August Wilson, like, I feel like he might be kind of simmering due. And depending on who's voting on the Tonys, I mean, Jackson, I know you were telling me before we recorded that it's an interesting group that we don't know entirely its makeup, but there could be enough of a contingent who really respects Henderson's career that that he gets in the top. I want to save actress, leading actress in a play for later because that's sort of the title <laughs> of the evening as it JC is. Versus JC versus um, yeah. So let's switch over to um, lead actor in a musical. Um, that's Christian Borle in Some Like It Hot, Jay Harrison Gee in Some Like It Hot, Josh Groban in Sweeney Todd, Brian Darcy James in Into the Woods, and Ben Platt in Parade. I... I I don't know. I talked to someone at a show who was like, there's no way Ben Platt isn't isn't going to win. But mm. I don't know if I agree with that because he just won. He's young. I think in some ways he gets a little upstaged by his co-star, Michaela Diamond, uh, and maybe a little bit upstaged by the production itself. Like, it's a very, like, slick I find it maybe a little too slick production, but um, I don't know. Esther, have, which of the – I know you saw Sweeney Todd. Do you think – would you vote for Groban? No. no. I mean, no, no. <laughs> Thank I, you I for think, saying it. Thank you for saying that. I think his – I mean, I think his voice sounds very good, but um, – and there's a lot that I did like about the production, but a lot that I think, you know – but it's a mixed bag. Um, I think, you know, we can talk about Anna Lee Ashford, who is incredible. I find incredible in it, but I don't think he – he just, you know, I think a lot of people have said this, so it's nothing new, but he sings it very sweetly and beautifully, but he doesn't really have a menace. It didn't yeah. really feel like he had a take on Sweeney Todd other than just, like, doing Sweeney Todd, which at this point, I think we want a, you know, Sweeney who challenges us yeah. in who's some way. Who's scary, you yeah, know. And Sweeney's got to be hot and scary, and but, like, like so so scary he's hot or so hot he's scary <laughs> yeah he was just like very sad <laughs> yeah um which which is a take but I, I don't know I don't think it also worked with the sort of milieu of the entire production um mm-hmm. he was also just in terms of the way it was staged he was up on a riser kind of back a lot like he was kind of like in the the distance in yeah a way. I mean I have Big some stuff. issues with that yeah. production top, design top yeah. um element of the stage because <laughs> I felt like I couldn't half the stuff from my orchestra seat <laughs> mm. and I had like press tickets and yeah. um, but I don't know I like as a transition like I do think we should acknowledge like Jay Harrison Gee is it pronounced mm-hmm. Gee um, who so. is um, one of who is non-binary and sort of chose to be in this category and I think could very well win because mm-hmm. um, that is such a sort of exuberant and wonderful performance yeah. that's who my money would be on especially because I'm like it hot I think it received the most Tony nominations yeah, of, yeah. 13 at 13 yeah so clearly there's a lot of love for that show um, and that and that is a tricky I mean that subject matter right how do you update someone yeah. like that hot in a non you know transphobic way or in, in a way that is inclusive and I think um, by most accounts it was a, a pretty success a pretty successful uh, adaptation and Jay Harrison Gee is at the center of that Christian Brawl he can he, wake, has he, can, his, he can sneeze okay. and get a Tony yeah. nomination yeah, so yeah, I am yeah. not yeah. worried about yeah Christian. and I think and I think it that avoids the sort of like canceling each other out because everyone's like well Christian has like yeah. you know whatever yeah, and I, I think also, like, Some Like It Hot takes the approach of, like, taking that character of Jerry slash Daphne um, and 
exploring them, finding a non-binary identity and making that the sort of emotional core of the musical. Mm -hmm. I feel like it does take a little bit of like a have your cake and eat it too moment where it's like, we'll do all of this nuanced work with that character and then Christian Borle's character will just going to play for all of the man in the dress jokes. Yes. Yes. Um, totally. Oh, I see. Yeah. 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 Um, That's interesting. Where it's like he's just a cad and like mm-hmm. we're exploring gender dynamics with Guy's character. But but that does, I think, make Guy's performance the one of the two that is clearly what people would gravitate towards if they really yeah. love that show. Yeah, um, and it's been a hit, right? Like it's, it's, it's yeah. well, it was not doing very well, and then its like, grosses went up like fifteen percent after oh, the Tony okay. nominations wow. came out. <laughs> I guess it's been a hit in whatever bubble I'm in. Yes. Yeah. Like, it's, like, it's a very yeah. like old fashioned yes. tap dancing. Casey Nicola like did the yeah. Book of Mormon, did a big old prom. show. He does. He knows how to get. He has an incredible sequence where it's like a Scooby Doo chase. I mean, that's all amazing. These doors. Yeah, um, and it got all these raves. And so it's the kind of thing where it's, like, beloved by people who are, like, we should be doing these, like, well-crafted, old-fashioned dance break, tap, right. um, big laugh musicals. Speaking of, I forgot to mention when I read the nominees, that because uh, his name was below the, the ad on my <laughs> webpage, uh, Colton Ryan for New York, New York, yes. who has had a good year. He was uh, in an episode of uh, the not Natasha Leone show, which yeah, is called Poker Face. Poker Face. Yeah. Also, um, the girl from Plainville. Yeah. He was yeah. great in that. Um, he was very good in that. And I feel like he got decent notices for that show but the show itself I don't know is that a non-starter do we think New yeah York? I think yeah. it's a like good work I mean the show did get a lot of nominations it got it was one of those things where the critics did not love it yeah. and then the nominations come out and they still they were timed well enough Susan Stroman like like Casey Nicola is mm-hmm. a sort of old fashioned choreographer director all my parents director. friends are like Yes. Love New York, it feels New York. Exactly like what you New have York, to, New York yeah. Is. All my parents' friends yeah. have been like, well, the, "Gotta see New York." New also, York. like the book of New York, New York is just a New York tourism pamphlet. Uh, like yeah. it's just, I mean, it's based on the Scorsese movie, updated for the present and more cutified and everything. But it's like every scene is at a different tourism spot. Yeah. Um, I'm surprised that it got nominated for book. <laughs> um, but yeah, he's and he's he's a like really like cilantro performance where mm. like you like it or you absolutely do <laughs> yes, not like heard, it. And, yeah, I, yeah. and I was the person who thought it tasted like soap. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> what, that was a very demure way of putting that. <laughs> so. I, we, I, we must mention we got two Evan Hansons. He's also a former Evan Hanson. Yes. Um, we got Ben Platt and Colton uh, Ryan. I I got to say for this category and we haven't even brought up Brian Darcy James another sort of respected who we didn't see when we, we didn't see when we saw he was, <laughs> out, he was out on opening COVID, night I think, <laughs> opening night so we didn't see but I have to imagine you know given that he was phenomenal I'm sure he was great I'm sure he was great and he's such a veteran theater actor he, he's never won a Tony either I think am I crazy I don't think he has, think he um, has. yeah um, I I wonder if part of me like sort of cynically thinks Ben Platt is like our musical theater celebrity. He's like sort of like movie star. Didn't you know? Dear Evan Hansen didn't really work out in the movies, but this is sort of like his you know rolling back the red carpet. His sort of back the embrace of the community and I do that think he left. He's, I mean, I don't know. He's I wonderful. think he's, he's really so great talented. in parade. Um, and it, I did like the production a lot, but um, yeah. I so I feel like it's hard to. I could totally see like anointing him like sort of Christian Borle style. Like give him another Tony. Like he's you know he's our musical theater, you know, emblematic of, you know, he's our leading man now for this generation. Um, that being said, I'm pulling for Jay Harrison Gee. Yeah. Um, and I feel like that's where this show could really win something big, you know, yeah. because it's not just for a great performance, but it's a statement about, like, a reimagined classic uh, in, a, in a modern way. And, like, 
you know, but it, within the cozy confines of like traditional musical theater, like isn't like you said, Jackson, like, aren't you kind of getting the best of both worlds or at least like some of both worlds? Of, yeah. Well, that's um, also just like that feels like a pitch that is very sellable to yeah. a Tony voter, someone mm-hmm. who is invested. A lot of them are producers or people who've worked in the industry for a long time. Um, and so someone who can be like, look, I can congratulate myself for seeming open-minded. Yeah. Pat myself um, on the back. And people love to pat and, themselves on the back. But, like, I still – it's still within the realm of my taste, so that's good for me. And, like, sort of some like it hot as a whole um, that, and definitely in that, in that realm. Mm-hmm. Um, let's go over to a Leading Actress in a Musical, um, which is Anna Lee Ashford uh, for Sweeney Todd. Sarah Bareilles for Into the Woods, Victoria Clark for Kimberly Akimbo, Lorna Courtney for Anne Juliet, and Michaela Diamond, uh, who I mentioned for Parade. I haven't seen Anne Juliet, but I was surprised by how many nominations it got. Like, mm-hmm. who, who, you, Jackson, I'm assuming you've seen I, Anne Juliet? I have I seen it. I've, I've seen, seen it too. too. Okay, yeah. so I want to hear from all of you or whatever. Talk about that show because I'm very confused as how that could get so many. No, it's <laughs> I a had juke, a great time. It's, it's it a, is a fun ticket. It is a fun It's, it's a Max Martin jukebox musical. Yeah. Yeah, but it, I will say, so I'll go pro before con necessarily, where it's like a jukebox musical. I'd much rather see Anne Juliet, and it's sort of, you know, fun. Gen Z take on, you know, what happens after Romeo, you know, uh, dies and Juliet, what if she didn't die? And like, let's have fun with that. And that's sort of what the basis of the story is. And it, you know, it's very tongue in cheek. It's very, feels very like Gen Z in its storytelling and its depiction of queerness. It's like very interesting. And I'd rather see that than a jukebox musical about Max Martin's life. And like those songs, those songs are, you know, They they hit. If you were a teen in 2004 or anywhere from 1995, to 2005, you're gonna like a lot of those songs. And I will say for Lorna Courtney, she does a really, she's very bubbly. She's, I think she went to UMish. She's got big UMish energy, big voice. <laughs> Which is a distinct kind of energy. It like, is. We're really yeah. going through all of yeah. the drama yeah, school. You know, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> 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 judgments based on what drama school <laughs> we, you went to. Well, some people have Juilliard hands, some people have UMish energy. Some people have we CCM haven't legs. even gotten to Jessica Chastain <laughs> yeah. yet. Like. Yeah. Oh my God. Oh my God. But you know what I mean. No, and, I yeah. do. So I don't, I mean, I don't think she should win and I don't think she will win but it's a really impressive debut performance yeah, and she's and a great voice the voice it's, is yeah. unassailable <laughs> it's one of those like congratulations you've made it through belting roar eight times a week yeah. like yeah. so yeah what so Esther what are some of the songs in this show oh like, my if god don't know hit Max me Martin. baby one more time even though there is a Britney musical on its oh, way yes. 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 Yeah, there's we a have, Britney yeah. um, roar there's some weird ones too blow blow Kesha's blow, blow, was, was, Kesha's blow came out of nowhere and I was like okay then you um, had some Celine Dion song. Um, um, uh, That was the one I was going to mention because, like, Betsy Wolf, who is nominated. um, She does such a great job. When you want it the most. Most. What is is the name of the song? That's the way it is. That's the way it is. Um, I mean, and and Betsy Wolf, um, who is nominated and supporting, just kills that. Um, That key change, she has it. Um, But, yeah, I mean, I don't know. It is, I was surprised at how many nominations it got, 100%, but I also had a great time. I don't think it's like it's not like high theater. Yeah, it's not Sondheim, right? But, but, you know, but it it is, but yeah it, in terms of like doing a jukebox musical, as Chris said, like it is the fun way to do it. The book is very you know, sometimes a little bit too cute, yeah. but it's like also very clever and it does it and it does a lot of things in very smart ways. So, you know Yes. It's congrats fun, to Lorna Courtney. Congrats to Lorna Courtney. A fun <laughs> yes. take on a jukebox musical. They fire a confetti cannon at you twice in the yes. audience yes. In, the, in the last Not, not unlike Fat Ham. I guess that's just <laughs> yeah. once. Exactly. But yeah. Ugh, um, uh, so I saw Kimberly Akimbo 
And I walked out and I said to my viewing companion, well, she just won the Tony. Mm. But I've talked to other people since then. That was months ago. And it's like Annalie Ashford for Sweeney Todd. People love her. I think it's a way too comedic take on that Thank role. Thank you. I was um, going to say that. And I loved Sarah Bareilles in Into the Woods, but I don't know if she's like quite ready uh, to win a Tony for acting yet, even though she she would I would be happy if she won. But I think maybe she's still newish to the community. I guess the person I've heard brought up more most often is Michaela Diamond, which mm. like I get, but in a way that I would get almost more if it was a featured nomination. Is that fair at all? No, I think that totally makes sense. I mean, I think it's borderline a featured role, yeah. but it's sort of I mean, that show is so tricky, too, because you know, the second act has more of her. Um, I also, I don't know, her accent um, works sometimes, doesn't work sometimes. Um, she's doing a, it, it's based in Georgia. She's doing sort of a jo- Georgia it, accent that's also a little patrician. Yeah. I think there's a choice there, but sometimes it works for you and sometimes it doesn't. Her voice is incredible. Totally. Um, I don't know. Yeah. To me, it seemed just very much in the shadow of Carolee Carmelo, who originated yeah. that role in, sure. in sort of in a similar approach to accent and vibrato. Um, <laughs> but oh, um, it's nice to have a well, Jewish person in that role. True, that's it's interesting because I it's because I think of that. I feel like Sarah Bareilles doesn't. I mean, I think she was phenomenal, but sort of suffers from that sort of original comparison with like Joanna Gleason. Like Joanna Gleason gives the definitive take. Yeah. On or the, Amy well, Adams in the park. No, well, that wasn't actually good. But sorry, sorry Amy. Well, but. I think what, what I liked about Sarah Bareilles in Into the Woods is like her voice is so distinctive so as like a kind perfect. of pop sound yeah. that like as the baker's wife who is like the modern person who is stuck in these fairy tales, it like tracks very well thematically. Well, mm-hmm. and I was gonna but, say like you know sort of almost as a counter to the Joanna Gleason thing, like. Obviously, yes, you know, we bow down at the altar, but I did find Sarah Burles, like, really sort of incredibly almost like a new take on it. Yeah. Um, and, you know, the, the modern, the modernity is sort of that Jackson was mentioning, um, really, you, you feel you feel her so much. Yeah. Um, but it also feels like that's of her. I don't know. I, I agree with Richard. Like, I don't see how you could not give it to Victoria Clark. Yeah. But. If, he, if people listening don't know, Victoria Clark, who is a woman, in a, a veteran stage performer in her, I believe, late 50s or early 60s, uh, who who is uh, playing a 16-year-old because uh, mm-hmm. with a sort of advanced aging disorder. Um, it's a really quirky musical that might tread into twee uh, on occasion, but I don't think her, perform- her performance really ever does. Um, I mean, Jackson, am I crazy? Like, uh, was she the front runner for a lot of the season, or am I not seeing? No, things right? I think she's definitely, and I think yeah. it's this interesting thing where, yeah, because Kimberly Akimbo opened in October in the fall, yeah. Um, and, and I was talking to someone who worked in the industry, and they were a little bit resentful of the idea of you open the musical, you think you're going to win best musical in the fall, you sort mm-hmm. of reign for the season, um, and you get to sort of walk through, which is what um, a Strange Loop did last year, mm-hmm. um, what your Evan, Evan Hansen did. It is sort of like sometimes you just producers try to call their shot. Um, mm-hmm. And I think there's a little bit of, I love Kimberly Akimbo and I think it is like hilarious and very deep, but there is a little bit of people being like, oh, is it too small? Is it too cute? It's not a giant hit. Especially um, after last year, I feel like with a strange, I could see Tony voters. I mean, I loved Strange Up and a strange Up did win and ran reigned supreme, but then it closed sort of sooner than people expected. So I could see, I'm a little bit nervous. I'm not like necessarily bullish on Kimberly Kimba because I feel like people might, after last year, seeing, you know, what happened with a strange Loop, a smaller, you know, more sort of, you know, internal, smaller musical, they might be hesitant to go full press for Kimberly Kimba. 
But yeah, but I, but I still think she, as a performance for that show, is so fully that show. Yeah. I mean, there's also Bonnie Milligan, a featured actress, who is incredible as her cookie oh aunt, <laughs> has a giant solo, like mm-hmm. feels like a real lock for that category. Yeah. But um, I, I think it's interesting. I think it's a very hot competition in Do this you category. think it could be more awarded in, like, performance and in Best Musical? Not to jump ahead, but, mm. like, it, like would that be a play? They'd, they'd give it to Victoria and Bonnie and then sort of go somewhere else with Best Musical? That's what I'm thinking. I mean, I uh, the category is stacked. I agree with Richard. I feel that Anna Lee, it, for me, it was, like, 25% too comedic, and I, I would have just preferred it to be just a little bit more, you know, dramatic, and I think she's wonderful, but I, I could see... If you're not going to give it to Josh, I think she does the stronger. She has the stronger performance and the stronger and does the stronger work. And so I could see, oh, you give it to Anna Lee. But K- Victoria Clark is so incredible, and she's the type of actress that should have two Tonys. Like she yeah. won, like uh, 15, 20 years ago for Light in the Piazza, and this is such a different performance. The range, if you, the fact that she can do both is so astounding. She's the heart and soul of the piece. It wouldn't work. It, it so would not work if Victoria Clark wasn't as fantastic as she is. So I feel like you, I would it's give it to Victoria. It's a magic trick of a performance. It really like, is. You know. Yeah. And she should have two Tonys. She's one of our th- <laughs> best theater actresses. I and Emily does have a Tony. Oh, she does. I prefer, for you yeah. can't take it with you. You can't take yeah. it with yeah. you. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, best featured actress. So I'm I'm putting my eggs in the Victoria Clark basket. Okay. Um, and I that's, don't know. I, I feel like it might go the other way of someone being like, I'm voting for Kimberly Kimbo for best musical. I'm voting for Bonnie mm. Milligan. Yeah. I want to recognize something in a revival because of the revi- best musical revival competition. And all of those revivals are really held together by these lead actress performances. Mm. Um and so, but I don't know. I think I, I can imagine Annalie. I think Annalie has a lot of love, even for, uh, sort of among the community, among totally. people being like, oh, she is outshining Groban at least. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, more... she got the lion's share of like the really good reviews. And mm-hmm. like, she just did a yeah. Times profile. Yeah. Um, but I'm really what I'm happy about this category being so competitive is that they will all do late night and early morning show song performances <laughs> to try to campaign. <laughs> well, oh, well, WGA. I mean, aren't the Tonys going to like. <laughs> oh, true. I mean, well, that's the other well, question. We don't know that. We don't yeah. know about that. Yeah. Yeah. That's, Very late night shows to do. Morning show we'll get. That's outside shows. the purview of yeah, this episode. Exactly. <laughs> Playbill YouTube yeah. videos. Yeah, yeah. He's yeah. been yeah. doing those. Yeah, we'll get, um, we'll get a plenty I'm of I'm sure those. we'll get performances. We'll get Sarah, Sarah Borellis back to the stage. Yes. We'll get Seth Rudetsky to do something with them. <laughs> um, all right. With the actors, let's round the bend to leading actress in a play. We have already mentioned Jodie Comer for Prima Facey. <laughs> Fassie. Yeah. Um, Jessica Chastain for the revival, uh, well, reinterpretation of A Doll's House. Jessica Hecht for Summer 1976. And Audra McDonald for Ohio State Murders. Only four people in this category. Um, Ohio State Murders was in the fall. It sadly closed pretty early uh, by a, a great uh, playwright called Adrian Kennedy, who uh, had never had a show on Broadway before, despite a very Lauded career. I first saw that play at the ART wow. when I was a teenager. Oh, and we sat next to um, We saw it together. Yeah. <laughs> um, and my college roommate was in this production. Um, not Audrey. I didn't go to college. You were roommates with Audrey McDonald? Slay. But um, so, you know, I'm uh, kind of, again, when I saw Chastain spinning around the stage and, and doing a very surprisingly uh, low-key naturalistic take on Nora Helmer uh, from, you know, Ibsen's Grand creation that is, I was explaining to a friend who I took, the sh- who didn't really know theater, who I took the, uh, to see the play, that like 
the guys have their Hamlets and their Lears and their Macbeth somewhere in the middle, and um, the women have some of those Shakespeare roles, but but like Nora is one of those roles in sort Defining of role. early mid adulthood that you really want to try to tackle. Hedda Gabler's in there as well. Um, I loved Chastain in it, and I thought, okay, well that's it. She'll get the T from Egot this in the spring and then in the summer and then she'll get an Emmy in the in the fall and now I don't know because mm. Jodie Comer having f- won an Olivier Award they I think kind of rushed it over to Broadway it happened so fast um, and it's a performance that's hard to argue with it's our she's Comer is on stage for an hour and 40 minutes and it's an intense show about a criminal defense lawyer recounting her own sexual assault and her efforts to try to get some justice for that um, I don't know does anyone think there's any beating Jodie Comer here I don't I haven't seen it yet, so I haven't I haven't seen Prima Facie. I don't know. I was not as big a fan of Chastain and that yeah. that production. Um, I think some of that is my issues with the production as a whole because I felt so you know it's very stripped down. She spins on stage. It's very drama school. <laughs> it's very drama school, um, and I felt myself you know it's stripped down, but I felt myself paying more attention to the artifice of that stripped downness mm. where you know you're focusing on the shadows on the walls and the way they're choose they choose you know there are scenes where um you know people are facing back to back um and you know the placement of the chairs is all very particular that I found myself really focusing on that rather than the performance and I do think Amy Herzog's um sort of reinterpretation of the text has a lot of great beats to it but mm-hmm. I don't know I I found myself very like focusing on all of the other stuff. Um, and I think, you know, the turn, it, it was it was just hard for me to lock into her performance, I think, part of that. It felt um, a little academic. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, I didn't feel it. And it, they try to get yeah. you to feel it at the end, and then it gets kind of speechifying. I think Chastain is definitely going to win Best Walk onto 45th Street. <laughs> I don't, I don't I think mean, she, yeah. Uh, okay, spoiler. but did it, in your, per- yeah, I mean, well, it's spoiler. On, it's on Twitter. It's on, it's on, on Twitter. TikTok. She, on TikTok. She, she, yeah. the, the but back that's a of the stage moment. opens. Gagged me good. She was but <laughs> People by the Daily Mail. People laughed at it in my production. Oh, that's crazy. Which also because you can see the marquee for the Museum of Broadway, like, directly yeah. behind her. I don't know. And, and, and I like, heard oh, from other going? people that, like, other that other audiences have sort of, like, laughed when it opened up. Um, but, yeah, the, the turn towards speechifying at the end, I don't know. I felt a lot of that sort of... I texted Jackson this, but like a lot of sort of that performative, sometimes Broadway audience, like, yes, you go, girl. <laughs> yeah. Like, you know, sort of the the sort of like performative liberalism right. that I think sometimes oh, well, the girl bossery have. of it. Girl bossery. Like, mm-hmm. I felt a lot of like, I heard literal snaps for her when she said one of her lines there was you know one of the one of the sort of big moments of like you know as a man would do was like yes yes which i was like okay that sort of takes it took me out of it a little bit um yeah i think i i really loved it when i saw it and i think for the production it was like maximal minimalism yeah and i do feel in jessica chastain it, it worked for in the production, it was she was giving me TV film on Broadway. The miking, I was a little annoyed at first. I was like, they're miking these people. They're whispering. I'm like, this isn't Broadway. Um, this is a movie, right? If you if you're like whispering in a Broadway theater, mm-hmm. but I think for for the production, I think Jamie Lloyd is the director, yeah. right? Yes. Yeah. It, it, very specific and really delivers. I but it was it's one of those things where I don't know if Jessica could do an actual production of. A doll's house with all the bells and whistles. If it were actually sort of fully realized and not all black drama school, mic'd at the wazoo, nothing around. I, 
I feel like it was so tailored to her and her skill set as a movie star. It was very much a movie star is on Broadway, stripping everything down. And I feel like that's, a lot of people like that. I feel that could definitely win a Tony because while Jodi is fantastic, she's Jessica is like a A-list movie coming right off the Oscar. I feel And might, an Emmy. It, well, Emmy, not an Emmy she'll yet, get an but Emmy. she'll get an Emmy. Yeah. She got a sack she, yeah. for um, George and Tammy, right? George and Tammy, So yeah. I feel like Jessica might be undeniable, even though I know that I'm contradicting myself where I'm saying I liked the, I really did enjoy it when I was watching it. I do have fun memories of it, but I absolutely agree with everything that you said, Esther, about the production. Yeah, you can hold two things true. Yeah, of course. Well, I think it's also, I mean, like, Prima Fassi also has a lot of speechifying mm, and is, yes. is, is a much, I think, a shakier play. I mean, anything up against a doll's house is a shakier, <laughs> right, but like, yes. I think Prima Fassi just in general is a, has a tough third section. Um, it's a one-act play. Um, and it also, it wasn't nominated for Best Play by the mm. Tonys. Which and, is telling. Which is telling, yeah. and it wasn't nominated for, I don't believe it was nominated for Direction. It's really all about Jodi, which I don't actually, which is in some ways might be telling, but I think this is so much just about her own performance. Yeah. She's yeah. using, she's from Liverpool, Her char- I like her character, she's using her own accent, she's yeah. really like, she's on stage the entire time, she moves, moves the pieces of the stage around, she disrobes, she does all of these things. It um, rains on her. It rains on her, as it must do in every British production of a play. <laughs> um, but it's, also the music. It's, it's the same. The same with the, oh, yeah. the death of the salesman. Like the music is very sort of yes. overbearing. Mm. Um, oh. Maybe that's yeah. just Brit- Britain. Also, <laughs> I mean, I think this is an interesting category. It's only four performances. I think a lot of people preemptively moved out of the category and tried to petition to be supporting roles, so mm-hmm. that they would, they knowing that Chastain and Comer were going to be the people. Who um, do you think moved in there? Um, well, Sharon D. Clark and um, Danielle Brooks in the piano lesson uh, right. um, are arguably is... lead performances, and I don't mm-hmm. think neither of them were nominated for actress in a feature role. They they went with actually two great performances: at the Cost of Living, Carrie Young and mm. Katie Sullivan, and Miriam Silverman for the Signing Sissy Bernstein's Window, who's the only person. Yeah, um, yeah, Rachel, Rachel Brosnahan could have been nominated for that. Oscar Isaac could have been nominated for lead actor. Um, and that was a revival that moved in very last minute. Mm-hmm. Um, but sort of there is a sense of really people anticipating that we Comer and Chastain from the very beginning of the season once they were announced and mm-hmm. it being that. Yeah. I, I think Comer just once you see that performance is so undeniable and such a like we are crowning this star. This is her first time doing a professional stage Which role. Which is insane. She didn't, go to, she didn't she go, go to theater school. She didn't go to theater school. She had trouble break because she is not from, you know, a Rada yeah. Oxbridge background, had trouble getting th- roles in theater, she said, because directors, I mean, like basically sort of the implication of classism, they, they just were like, oh, you don't have the training, you yeah. can't do this. And right. wow. she did television. Um, and then she's like, oh, I don't have the training, watch me do an hour and 40 minutes <laughs> And I monologue. do think, I <laughs> will say says. to the yeah. like, you know, JCJC comparison, like for me, the I do agree that there's some shakiness in the play. It's not, you know, a doll's house. But I do feel like she sells that transformation that her character undergoes so well. Um, and it, it for me, you know, it, it's sort of a reverse transformation a little bit of a doll's house. It is someone mm. sort of coming down from there. From their empowerment in a way. Um, And maybe that's the wrong way of putting it. But you guys know what I mean. Mm -hmm. Um, And I I really, you know, and that's partially just because she's on stage the whole time. She's talking the whole time. But I really did. You you see this transformation of this character, which I think she is so good at, as we know from, like, her work in film and television. I mean, like, obviously the sort of subtle little moves she did in Killing Eve, which made Mm. her famous. And... I do think, like, I was 
like blown away by what she could do on that stage. Yeah. I think we one thing, you know, kind of maybe to your point, Chris, about Chastain maybe having the edge over Comer uh, is that. Comer is famous to some people. You know, Killing Eve was a pretty niche show. I think only critics in New York liked The Last Duel. (laughs) Um, Great, great movie. Um, Ridley Scott was a Tony voter. I wonder if maybe Chastain, because like, it's like, oh, it's her, Oscar, you know. She She literally just got an Oscar. Maybe there's something there. Um, At the very least, I think that Adult's House will win Best Revival. Mm. um, Okay, yeah. Well, let's switch Mm. into the Best Play category then. uh, the best new plays are Ain't No Mo, Between Riverside and Crazy, Cost of Living, Fat Ham, which won a Pulitzer, yes. Leopoldstadt, hmm. which is said to be Tom Stoppard's last play, and actually has run for a long, much yeah. longer time than I thought it would. Mm-hmm. Revival is uh, August Wilson Piano Lesson, Samuel L. Jackson also nominated for that and featured. Doll's House, signed in Sidney Brewstein's window, um, which is Lorraine's Hans- Lorraine Hansberry's kind of lost work, uh, and then Top Dog Underdog. Um, I have... Uh, I was very excited to see Fat Ham, which I feel like is the front runner here. It um, does have a Pulitzer. Yeah. It didn't I, quite grab me in the way. Maybe I needed oof. to see it off-Broadway or something. I, I haven't know, seen it on-Broadway yet, and I loved it off-Broadway. Yeah. I am not a huge Fat Ham fan, um, particularly. I think the first 80% of it, I was like on board, on board, and then the ending ruined everything for me. <laughs> really? In a really big way. It's very uh, Chase Bank corporate pride. Um, They've added I, a confetti cannon in the yes, Broadway run. <laughs> yes, they did. Drag queen ex machina. Yeah. yeah. No, basically. Mm-hmm. But I do think that there's, you know, it does have a Pulitzer. There's clearly a lot of love for it. I, if I were picking a best play, I mean, I think Ain't No Mold was... Between Riverside and Crazy also has a Pulitzer. Oh, also, oh yeah. Oh, there are three Pulitzers. Three, oh, because Cost yes. of Living. Yeah. Cost, Cost of, of Living, living also all, has a Pulitzer, They all won Pulitzers too. in different years. And of those three, I would say I Cost of Living really blew me away this fall. It didn't run for that long, but it was a limited engagement. Um, I didn't the, have a chance to see it. The performances were so uh, fantastic and... Um, it was really I was really blown away by it that would be my pick I, that's an emotional pick I don't know if the Tony voters you know will remember it I think that maybe the, the nomination is the prize here um, but recency bias aside I'd be fully I'm fully cost of living and I am anti fat ham and I'm <laughs> going on the record as saying that and that is my, yeah. Um, yeah well I think actually I think Leopoldstadt is probably the favorite in the yeah. category yeah. because mm-hmm. it's Tom Stoppard because it's it's sort of marketed as Tom Stoppard gets personal. It's about, Mm -hmm. it's him dramatizing a version of his family's history. His family was in um, Prague, um, and he didn't know about it until he was older, that he had a Jewish family that was um, largely eliminated by the Nazis. Um, And then the play itself is set in Vienna, um, but imagining a similar sort of fate, and then a character later on who faces the discovery of this whole history that he didn't realize. Mm-hmm. It's also not as tightly constructed as some Toppers thing. It's, yeah. not, it's not Arcadia. Topper. It's, it's not, not Arcadia. Yeah, it's not as academic. I did love it. Yes. I mean, like, I there, is there is math. <laughs> there is <laughs> math. There's all, a lot of math. Has to be, it has to be math. <laughs> there has Tom to be math. He loves math. I don't yeah. know. Yeah, I, I sentimental. Like, I mean, I loved it. Um, I also but, really enjoyed it. I thought it was but, really fantastic. But, you know, I, I agree. It's like, it's not Arcadia. It's not one of his, like, most most incredible works, but I am, I do love him. It yeah. also is sort of, I will say, if we're talking about sort of like the Sun Like It Hot, like a big traditional play, it's a big play with a yeah. big, cast. big cast. It's all in like one room. You see the room go from decadence to sort of, you it know. It spans decades. Spans yeah. decades. It's a little hard to follow in that, mm-hmm, you know, totally. the character names and, and the, the family and tree. And there are actors, yeah, and actors yeah. play 
they don't play multiple characters. Some of them play multiple characters as they get get yeah. older, but there is like there is like there, yeah, it's definitely a little confusing for sure. Yeah. Um, um, Brandon Uranowitz was nominated yes. for. I think he will win, uh, and he he that's his fourth nomination, I believe. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's you know kind of a, a younger stalwart of the stage. Totally, um, and he's a is a standout in, in the production. Yeah, he's um, really also fantastic. has been selling well. It's, it's, well, that's the, that's kind it's, of what I saw it back in the fall, and then I recently was like, wait, that's still playing? Like, <laughs> yeah. I was because it's a difficult three timeline, you know, vast family tree, dark play about the Holocaust and and things leading up to the Holocaust. And I I thought maybe that wasn't the the hottest ticket. I was thinking back to the Paula Vogel play, which I guess did well. Uh, what was that called? Indecency. Right. Indecency. But like and that. Speaking of rain on stage. Um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> But yeah, I mean, I, I I feel like you're right, Jackson, in that like if you if you get the marketing of his most personal work to date, and it might be Stoppard's last play, like that that feels sort of unbeatable, yeah, pretty undeniable. I mean, I imagine Fat Ham feels like the thing that could rival it, and yeah. and that the sort of campaign you run for that is it's American and <laughs> right, yeah. it's it's homegrown. It's that it's doesn't New stop York. That doesn't. Um, but that, and Tony's does, having cared about that before. Yeah. And Fat Ham <laughs> does a clever thing of you know, regardless of what you felt about the end or what's come before the end, it leaves it, you on, it's on a high loud note. Music and confetti yeah. and people dancing, and you're like. I think I just saw something great. And then you walk a block and you're like, wait a second. Uh, at least in my case. <laughs> yes. But um, yeah, I, I think it's an, I think the good thing about this category, best play, uh, is that, you know, again, we're seeing a diversity. We're seeing lots of different perspectives, different time periods. It doesn't feel sort of stiffly like, you know, a play about theater. You know, it, it, it's, yeah. it, it's a lot of topics kind of covered, which mm-hmm. I, um, I think is exciting. Um well, should we move on to musical then? Yeah. Um, we have best musical uh, in a, the a, 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 let's do revival is um, Into the Woods, uh, Camelot, the Aaron Sorkin version, uh, you know, like Taylor's version, Aaron's version. Parade, which was this Parade's first time on Broadway? No, no, no but it was. It was on Broadway, the original. Okay, it was Jason Robert Brown won the Tony. Because I remember Tony. when I was in college, uh, you know, in the 1970s, this was uh, one of the w- that was like the thinking person's favorite musical, and but they were like, but it, it, it was too dark for New York. Like it wasn't like people didn't, you know. Anyway, so now it's had its gl- glossy revival, and then of course there's Sweeney Todd. Um, of th- that's where I think I see Sweeney Todd definitely winning because it's gotten such Into good reviews. But win. yeah, I would yeah. I would think Into the Woods is a better production, although it is really sort of like it, the city center. Honestly, I would give the Tony to the city center version of Into the Woods, the encore version before the before it transferred, and it did. Parade really... also a city center yeah. production. Yeah, it's a real. <laughs> <laughs> they, um, but I do. Uh, I, yeah, Sweeney. I feel like you know people love the you know the forty person orchestra. Recent. It's more recent. Um, it's starry. It is fully realized in a way that Into the Woods felt sort of thin and sort it of skinny. It is a city center production. Yeah, it's like it gives you sort of the bells. There's the big crane. There's you know um, the slide. The slide. The I want to ju- go down the slide. The jumping down. You know when they jump in the last moments. It gives you those like. <gasps> Moments. Um, even, There's a kid from Stranger Things. Oh, he's he's the best one in it. I <laughs> he's think. Great. I can't believe he didn't get nominated. That's Gaten. Gaten Matarazzo. Yes, Matarazzo. Yeah. Um, so I do, but I feel like people have been. I feel like Parade has a lot yeah. of yeah. support here. Yeah. I mean, the question is also whether or not the Tony nominating committee, which is like twenty five people, it's it's like it's a it's a smaller group of people that they select to go see all the shows early on. One of them is Becky Ann Baker, which I love because oh. I always see Becky Ann Baker at shows, and I'm like, she's paying attention. A dream. Um, 
But they seem to like Into the Woods more than um, than uh, Sweeney Todd. They, mm. they nominated, for instance, Thomas Kale, who's also directed Hamilton, who did Sweeney Todd, does not get a nomination for Best Director. Mm. Um, and Brian Darcy James sneaking in there for Lead Actor. True. And Julia Lester, who was wonderful oh, as so Little Red. Good. She so is good. from High School Musical, the musical, the series. <laughs> She's the first member of High School Musical, the musical, the series to be nominated for a Tony. But not, not the, Olivia not Rodrigo. Yeah, say that. <laughs> Olivia Rodrigo will come in and do something, you know. Doll's House. Josh Bassett's going to replace Josh Groban. Exactly. <laughs> there we go. But also, Jackson, don't you, isn't there maybe some some argument to be made that Into the Woods uh, has extra momentum because, like you said, yes. it was positioned as this first hit yes. of the... Yes, it was. Yeah. My friend described it as running the Top Gun Maverick campaign. Uh, there you um, go. To, to translate also... this for your audience, they, they are the blockbuster that was a summer blockbuster. <laughs> it's also touring the right now. Like it's it touring has now. a touring company. That's right. Um, I don't know if that's enough to topple something that is currently running and making a ton of money uh, like Sweeney Todd is. Um, And then I think there is also really a strong chance for Parade making the case of we are the serious revival. We are topical. We're of the moment. It's about anti-Semitism. Yeah, Um, Yeah, and Parade went into the two (laughs) anti-Semitism play. Yeah. And Parade is directed by like a hot director, Michael Arden, who like did um, the Deaf West Spring Awakening, right? Like he was Mm -hmm. an actor. I saw him in the Times They Are Changing, the Twyla Tharp Trampoline. I did uh, not him expect in Hunchback of Notre Dame. <laughs> yeah. um, did not expect to hear the times they are changing today. I love yeah. that. Well, you know, um, that was when I worked at Schubert. I got to see it for free. Um, yeah, I, I think, I, I, I don't know. I'm now sort of swayed, Jackson, to the sort of into the woods side of things because for all of those factors, I just wonder if Sweeney Todd, be, if recency bias, you know, if, if that's what it is. Um, my hunch would be that if Leopold Stadt is winning play, maybe they're, they're they want to balance that darkness out with some lightness in 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 one of the other big categories. But but maybe the biggest category, the one that the the sort of CBS broadcast touts the big the most, is original musical, um, which is Anne Juliet, Kimberly Akimbo, New York, New York, Shucked, which we have not brought up yet. We should talk about Shucked. We got to talk about and some like it hot. Um, <laughs> well, let's start with Shucked then. I mean, that's a show that I feel like over the course of this spring, uh, about forty different people, be it on Twitter or in real life. Or, or over text, we're like, wait, what's shocked? <laughs> what's that about? Because it's a new musical campaign. that's not based on anything. That's not, which we have and to they celebrate. Have a crazy marketing campaign. Yes, yeah. the viral marketing it's campaign just is really fantastic. About corn. <laughs> and it really is. I, I'm not a shucked stan. There's some real shucked heads out there. There's some people who ride <laughs> for shucked. And while I had a good time, and I appreciate that it's like completely original, um, and I had a really fun time in the theater. And it, it got some uh, acting nods, Kevin Cahoon um, and Alex Newell, we got, who I think is taking, we didn't talk about the supporting categories, but um, they are so fantastic. They steal the show in one big number. Um, I, a Glee alum, right? Yes. Alex uh, yeah, um, yes, Glee yeah. alum, for sure. Um, and, and like Jerry Harrison, Gee, non-binary. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's also a non-binary performer in Anne Juliet, Justin David Sullivan, who declined to enter into the gendered categories. Mm-hmm. And it does feel like it will be glaring um, to, to have potentially two non-binary winners um, yes. receive awards in, in gender, gender categories. categories. Yeah, um, it's... So that's something that is apparent in the nomination. And yeah. Shucked doesn't feel like... It feels like as corny <laughs> as it is that it doesn't have that sort of like... It, there's almost... It, it almost rounds the bend to cool again. Like it, yeah. it feels like... Yeah. It's in on the joke. It knows what yeah. it's doing. I, I, yeah, and I've heard people sort of outside of the theater community who've seen it um, and sort of and have have liked it too um, you know it, it's not just sort of like corny for theater kid corny yeah and a big hit with my coworkers at New York Magazine who don't necessarily go to all the theater I recommend to them. <laughs> 
<laughs> so, yeah. But we don't think it'll win here, right? Like, no. it feels unlikely. It feels like it, it'll do the sort of Avenue Q, Book of Mormon angle of like, listen, we just made you laugh the most of anything. Mm-hmm. Um, don't you like that? Um, but that feels like an outside chance. Right, right. So what will win? Some like it hot? I think Kimberly Akimbo. Oh, that's what um, I want. I'm putting, I want it to be Kimberly Akimbo. I want I it to hope. be Kimberly Akimbo. Which is interesting because it's a smaller musical. It doesn't have a ton of big, num- like, group numbers. It's, 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 it ends on a very understated note. But maybe that's okay. That's if but, it's like, fresh. Sobs. And, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's bittersweet. Yeah. The ending. It feels, it, I don't know. I, the, yeah, my heart says Kimberly Akimbo. But I think some like it hot. I do think there's, uh, uh a appetite, or there's an appetite for a big budget, a big Broadway show with the kicking and the dancing, and that you know makes you like believe in like sort of like the magic of theater in that way again. And I feel like that you know, it's not New York, New York. I think I don't think that's going <laughs> to be the one that takes it. But I could see some like it hot um, taking it for that reason. And it's laying the groundwork for Smash the Musical, which is coming real fast and <laughs> <laughs> in our way. Yeah, let's be bad. We should note that, yeah, they, they use Let's Be Bad from Smash just in Some Like It Hot. And yeah. if the Smash musical happens, Let's Be Bad could just be performed, you know, within blocks from Every show should have Let's Be Bad in it. <laughs> so put it in a doll's house, put it in Top Dog, Underdog. Um, but, yeah, I'm going to stake my claim. I'm going to say Kimberly Akimbo because that's what I thought. That was my favorite musical of the year. But I would not be surprised if Some Like It Hot sneaks in there. Who wrote the music for Kimberly Akimbo? Uh, Janine Tesori. Janine Tesori. With a book by David. That would make her one of the more winning musical theater she writers fun home in too, recent, yeah. Yeah. Shrek with book, the musical and with a book, with a book by David Lindsay Abair David mm-hmm. Lindsay Abair right. who, who he did the lyrics um, for, the lyrics for, oh, no he did the book based, and the lyrics it's based, it's based on, on his play, play. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah he worked on the lyrics with, with Janine mm-hmm. who also supervised she's a sort of Sondheim protege in a way too she supervised West Side Stories mm. music yeah. Um, I remember Rachel Zegler thanking her and performing Shrek the Musical at Miss Cascala. Um, <laughs> oh, and but, that green dress. but really, she's she's sort of beloved. She did Thoroughly Modern Millie. Um, Carolina Change. Which, Carolina, Carolina Change. Change. Oh, which, so. She did um, a uh, Mother Courage and Her Children with Meryl Streep in Central Park, which I saw. I've seen oh those God. YouTube videos. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I'm just bragging about how long I've lived in New York City. Isn't that, a, is, um, wasn't that Mike Nichol? Uh, I don't know. It was Tony Kushner was involved? Okay. Maybe. Yeah, I don't remember. Anyway, it was a long time. It was 17 years ago. Um, okay, so I think that that probably does it for all our categories. Before we go, though, um, I think we did this last time we all worked together pre-pandemic. I want you each to tell me someone you're advocating for. Like, in any category, like, is there one win that you'd be very happy about? Um, if you want to think about it, I can start. Oh, okay, I feel like we're going to say the same thing, though. Yeah, I'm going to say well, Bonnie Mill again. Yeah, that's what I was going to say, too. <laughs> oh, but, but she's likely to win. Okay. Is there, think about someone who maybe um, is a little further down, down the, the list. Um, I was telling Jackson this, but I was at a dinner party a couple of weeks ago, and I said, well, you know, I've seen a lot, but weirdly enough, my favorite thing I saw was summer 1976. And the person I was talking to, a, a theater critic, was like, oh, gee, like, that's not, that's yeah. not what I would have said. Um, but I really liked it. And I think that Jessica Hecht, uh, who co-stars alongside Laura Linney, who was not nominated, is so good in that play. Mm. And such a te- and that performance is such a testament to how good Jessica Hecht is anytime she's on stage. And people know her from Friends. She was the original... She was Carol's wife. She was Carol's yeah. wife. Um, Susan? Susan? Susan. Um, but she's just been amazing in a variety of things. And so I don't think she'll win. And she's got Comer and Chastain and McDonald to compete with. Um, but uh, maybe it's incentive enough to say that she's worth winning, uh, that people will go see the play. 
Um, all right, who wants to go next? Jen? Also, just incentive to hopefully get her back on Succession before it ends. <laughs> oh my God, that's she is, right. She is yes. the biographer Michelle Pantso yes. who interviews Greg and tries to get. Oh my God, that's right. It's cross promotion yeah. for a podcast of watching. <laughs> that's, yes, thank you. You can listen to me and Chris talk about Succession. Um, all right, does anyone else have one? I, I do. So okay. I so on the musical side, Bonnie Milligan, I think she is, uh, gives an amazing, amazing performance. I hope that she wins. She sings that she belts the highest note on Broadway and she makes you laugh the whole entire time while doing it. Um, but my other pick, I would say uh, um, either Katie Sullivan or Carrie Young for Cost of Living. Their performances in that play were really fantastic, specifically uh, Katie Sullivan. Um, she's wheelchair bound and she is absolutely heartbreaking um, in her portrayal of this, you know, of this woman, you know, adjusting to life after a major accident uh, with her uh, sort of estranged husband. Um, and she really, she was absolutely devastating. And it was a really incredible moment for Broadway to um, feature these uh, differently abled performances and performers in a, you know, in a Broadway show. And I interviewed the cast in October and we were, uh, she told me that they had to, Broadway was not really equipped for. Nor um, is most of New York City. Nor is most of New York. They had to build dressing yeah. rooms backstage that could fit wheelchairs for her and her understudies. So yeah. it just, it showed there's a lot of work to be done and yet the work is happening. And all of that aside, she gives an incredible. She gave an incredible acting performance. So, yeah. Katie Sullivan, I, I'm rooting for you um, and cost of living in general. Jackson, do you have one? Um, yeah, I, I was also going to say Katie Sullivan, no Carrie way. Young, but um, <laughs> we're so also alike. also really pulling for Stephen McKinley Henderson. Um, there's only two other people I wanted to shout out: Ruthie Ann Miles as the mm. beggar woman in Sweeney Todd. <laughs> oh no! It's, it's, well, then, Esther, you can talk about that. Um, <laughs> But also um, the the score of K-pop, I was just happy to see nominated, yeah. um, and is is really really fun. It's a show that didn't necessarily work with its book was was pretty flawed, and it was based on a sort of more immersive off Broadway version that mm-hmm. clicked much better than seeing it in the well, it was in the round at uh, Circle in the Square. Um, but it has this great sort of imitation K-pop that is compelling and like full of bangers in its own right. Yeah. Um, and so I was happy to see it get nominated for that. And its choreography and its costumes was one of those things that they remembered and stuck with. Um, that was so heartbreaking. It closed so fast. Yes. It was like such a it, – it's nice that it's getting its due because it was um, – it had some, it, yeah, the transfer didn't really work, but there were some really fantastic elements. I think it was a very good one. It's a good pick. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say uh, thank you for letting me <laughs> do not have to, like, re-choose no, no, no. my moment. Um, but, yeah, I was going to say I, I am obviously rooting for Bonnie Milligan. Um, I think she's incredible. But Ruthie Ann Miles does something really incredible with The Beggar Woman, which is sort of usually thought of as a very sort of side performance. And also, I mean— she just went through the most unimaginable tragedy um, mm. in her personal life, um, it, this traffic accident that was that was awful. And I'm always sort of like heartened and incredible. Like it's one of those things you can sort of barely imagine coming back from. And, and then to play that part and then to every play that part night is <sighs> just is sort of un- astounding. And I think she does such an interesting job with it. So yeah, I, I, I you know rooting for Bonnie Milligan, but would very would be awesome to see Ruthie. Great. Okay. Well, um, thank you all for uh, chatting with me about all this exciting stuff. Um, we don't know if there are going to be a Tony Award. Yeah, that's a really good. That's <laughs> a really question. good. Point. I mean, no, excuse me. There will be the awards, but we don't know if there's going to be a broadcast hosted by Ariana um, DeBose. Right. Well, Ariana DeBose with outriders with, is, yeah. we've already experienced, <laughs> yeah. and right. we may experience. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Uh, the gift that keeps on giving. She will literally will have done the thing if she has to write it herself. <laughs> um, so that'll be Sunday, the 10th of June. Um, 
it's you know I, I think it's been a heartening year for theater for for commercial Broadway theater. I would love to have you all back and talk about off Broadway stuff and whatever at some point. Maybe we'll do an Obi special. Oh yeah, Lucille Lortel. Oh my God, Titanic. <laughs> uh, yes. But in the meantime, um, Esther, where can people find you and your work? Um, you can find me all over the place um, at various websites, including VanityVair.com. Um, and, yeah, I, I mean, it's weird to say, but Twitter is a place where you can probably find me posting sure. all my articles. Uh, it's easy, right? Um, that's also my Instagram where I also post my articles. So, yeah. Um, and you can find me right, right and around. <laughs> How about you, Jackson? Uh, yeah, you can find me online at vulture.com or in print in New York Magazine or on Twitter at McHenryJD. And Chris? You can find me right here next to you, Richard, <laughs> at Vanity Fair <laughs> and on Twitter at Christress. And I'm at Rylaws. You can follow Little Gold Men at VF Awards Insider, uh, VF.com, and all that. Thank you for listening. That does it for this week's show. Next week, we'll continue our Pride flashbacks with My Beautiful Laundrette from Stephen Frears starring Daniel Day-Lewis uh, just a little bit later in the 80s as we move closer to the present. In the meantime, find us at VanityFair.com. Find us on Twitter and Instagram at VF Awards Insider. And on our own, I am at Katie Rich and Rebecca. Becca M. Ford. And David. David Canfield 97. And Chris. Chris Tris. Our editor and producer is Brett Fuchs, and this week's award for the best description, truly, of what we love about the Oscars goes to Geraldine Page. All sorts of tacky people win, and watching everyone run up and down those aisles is just adorable. I'm David Remnick, host of the New Yorker Radio Hour. There's nothing like finding a story you can really sink into that lets you tune out the noise and focus on what matters. In print or here on the podcast, The New Yorker brings you thoughtfulness and depth and even humor that you can't find anywhere else. So please join me every week for The New Yorker Radio Hour, wherever you listen to podcasts.